Gaming NBS, episodes 373.5, being recorded January 2022? Maybe not. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this week, BSers. This is going to be a crossover episode with Craig Shipman's Third Floor Wars. Craig's had both Brett and I on the show to talk about RPGs and a variety of different things. Brett specifically, the Streets of Avalon. And since then, things have not been the same for Craig. Let me tell you, he does a lot of RPG actual plays. You can find those on Twitch and YouTube. And he plays miniatures, specifically Malifaux, which I have no idea what that's about. But where I think Craig really shines in all sincerity and something I think you'll appreciate is his interviews with individuals from the RPG industry. Individuals like Dennis Detwiller of Delta Green, Shane Hensley, the guy that's behind RPGs like Deadlands and Savage Worlds. And then there's the Bakers, Vincent and McGay, who did something called Apocalypse World. And it doesn't end there. There's plenty more. I've listened to a lot of RPG podcasts, and it's no BS that Craig's interviews are thought-provoking, evocative, and entertaining. If you like what you hear, do Craig a favor. Do a search for Third Floor Wars in your podcatcher of choice and hit subscribe. But don't stop there. Make sure you go back and listen to all those interviews. You won't be sorry. In this episode, he talks with Sage LaTora of Dungeon World fame. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Kind of lightning in a bottle. That was a phrase that a, a friend of mine used that uh, has always stuck with me uh, because I, I've come to terms with the fact that anything that I do after Dungeon World is likely not going to be anywhere. I mean, nothing I've done so far has been as big. It, nothing I do ever again may be as big. And I, I'm cool with that now uh, because I've realized that some ideas, you're just, you know, the right people in the right place at the right time with the right idea and everything comes together and it all hits, it clicks. It's been several months since I sat down and talked to Sage LaTora. We discussed where Dungeon World came from, the design philosophy behind it, but then we divert. And that's when this conversation really gets interesting. Over the last several years interviewing creators, we've talked about some pretty deep stuff, but buckle up because Sage and I get real deep. We talk about some general theories behind games, how to look in the rearview mirror at creations that may or may not have aged well, and what's great about new games and what we love about old games. I want to give a special shout out to three of our newest patrons, John Sheffield, Connell Damiano, and Ryan Sell. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Sage. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast.
Greg here on the third floor. Today, we're talking to Sage Latora. Now, Sage has uh, been very involved within the community itself of role playing, but he's probably best known for the very unique and interesting Dungeon World RPG. So, Sage, welcome to the third floor. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. This is it's always fun to uh, talk role playing games. Uh, honestly, sometimes it's hard to stop me from talking. So this will this be an adventure for both of us. <laughs> you came to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to say this. And if I have any previous guests listening, it, this is not a knock on you. But I, I've really been looking forward to this interview. And, and I look forward to a lot of interviews, but I've been extra special looking forward to this. Um, and part of the reason is uh, for listeners not familiar with Sage, is not only Sage. Uh, you know, was a co-author of, of Dungeon World, um, which um, for those listening, if you heard my interview with uh, Megan Vincent Baker, you know that it's built off of Powered by the Apocalypse. And we actually talked a little bit about Dungeon World in that interview as well. But um, I have been following and uh, stalking is probably a better word, stalking Sage a little bit. <laughs> and um, it's really interesting um the sage's thoughts on role playing and the way that he looks at it both mechanically as well as the the softer sides of it as well so um so sage before we get into all of those goodies um i want to talk about you discovering gaming so at one point in your life you had never seen dice you'd never rolled dice you never pretended to be somebody else never moved uh, little models across the table when did that first that world first open up to you or uh for me i mean i think in retrospect, it seems kind of inevitable, uh, given just kind of how nerdy I was and how nerdy my family was. But uh, the the definite point where I first like actually sat down to play a role playing game was uh, with my good friend Isaac. Uh, he's actually one of the artists on Dungeon World. He was the best man at my wedding. Like, wow, closest friend. Uh, he we uh, had been friends for a while. We played magic together, stuff like that, and then. Uh, he asked me if I wanted to play D&D, and I was like, well, I'm a nerd. I, I should love this. Uh, and the problem is he didn't know the rules, really, and he uh, had one solo Dark Sun adventure. I don't even know what adventure this was. Um, and just kind started of like... you off dark. Yeah, yeah. Dark we, Sun we, is we like... Started right there. I was a wizard in a pit fight. I didn't, I, I didn't understand the rules. I didn't know how spells work. So I was just a guy with a knife in a pit fight. Uh, we didn't get very far with that game. Uh, but um, that was really my first experience with uh, D&D or with role-playing games at all and, and D&D in particular. And that was, you know, in name at least, second edition. But really it was Isaac's memory of second edition because uh, I think the group he had been playing with at the time, everybody else had the core books. So he just had the adventure and we were kind of like making it up as we went. Um, and this was must have been late 90s uh, because third edition came out not too long after that. I brought, bought the third edition books as they came out because they did this weird staggered release. Uh, so, you know, I got the player's handbook, which at the time had they sold it with a little insert in the back. So you had a little bit about XP and magic items and monsters who, so you know, play the whole game uh that was a weird release schedule uh but they <laughs> they that was what i had and so i created a dungeon to run my siblings through uh and the first room i was literally like oh well there's uh it was like a 20 by 20 room and i was like well there's this many squares let's put that many cobalts in it like they're you're, you're <laughs> wall to wall cobalts uh five foot squares uh i hadn't figured out the rules about like squeezing between things yet so it was just a, a whack-a-mole of of cobalts um so it's kind of amazing that i stuck with role-playing games really 
Well, uh, it sounds like you, you like create a tower defense gaming at the same time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was, it was, you know, they were at the entrance to the dungeon. Uh, I never bothered to say what was outside of it. And oh, so funny. there was a door behind them and cobalt in front of them. And I don't think we even finished that combat. Uh, and then, yeah, for years I played uh, third edition D20, picked up far more books for that game than I ever used. Um, and then... Uh, I mean, a big pivot for me was through a few of my friends back home in, in New Mexico. Uh, I started, uh, they were online enough to know about games like Burning Wheel. So I got to play some Burning Wheel with them uh, and kind of found out about uh, a wider audience of games. Um, and then amazingly, uh, I moved out here to Seattle, which is where I am now. And uh, That's a good place for gaming. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and that's... <laughs> part of how it worked out uh my my aunt actually had gone to school out here and she uh comes out back to see friends about once a year and so i had just moved out here for work and my aunt came out for a normal visit and says oh my friend's having a party why don't you come over because i think uh my friend's boyfriend would be somebody that you get along with um and so that turned out to be john harper and isn't we, that funny yeah we we sat around drinking a beer and did this very kind of like awkward conversation of figuring out when when somebody says you're into role-playing games are we going to sit here and like talk about your your fighter build for 30 minutes or and so we kind of start like name dropping the like yeah like i recently did a burning wheel game that was pretty good he's like oh okay like i can see that we're kind of on the same page here um and please so, yeah. don't tell me about your paladin. Please don't tell me about yeah, your paladin. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think both of us were expecting because of how the introduction was. The introduction was through folks who didn't quite get what we were doing. We were sure that it was going to be like, oh yeah, this guy, you know, played D and D once in college or something, and yeah. Uh, and then through John Harper, I met um, lots of other gaming folks out here because there's just none of them in Seattle. Uh, and that, in particular, I, I gamed regularly with uh, John Harper for years, and that was a big influence on dungeon world like uh you know obviously adam's the co-author but uh between john harper and uh paul and shannon riddle they're kind of the um oh whatever the fifth beetle is uh yeah like the the unnamed collab or i mean we thanked them in the book obviously but the they're the best of dungeon world yeah yeah they're they're the the people who uh had a, a huge influence on that and also uh some other folks that we hung out with regularly then like jonathan walton uh and all these folks have gone on to make their own excellent games so there's uh, there's something to be said for lucking into a, an amazing collection of people. Yeah, but but I think for a lot of listeners, I mean, obviously, we don't run into John Harper and uh, <laughs> and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, a lot of us lucked into our first gaming groups, right, where you just kind of mm-hmm. figured it out. And, um, you know, there's a lot. And I, and I imagine because, like, I hear those stories all the time where, like, you know, yeah, I had a neighbor who was into it. And, you know, we ended up falling in love with it. And he's been my friend for 25 years. Right. Um I guess that there must be a lot of stories of people that had shitty neighbors that play D and D and they're like, they don't ever make it to my podcast, I guess. So, cause yeah. they hate role playing. Right. Yeah. The number of people who bounce off from, from, you know, a first bad experience has got to be huge. And then there's the rest of us who somehow there's, there's magic there early on and it clicks. So when we go back in time, Sage, and think about Dungeon and Dragons, Isaac edition, what was it? That I mean, because it hooked you, right? I mean, it hooked you enough to to buy three and to spend too much money on it and stuff like that. When you look back on it, can you can you get a sense as adult Sage figuring out what was it that young Sage really liked? Oh wow, you're you're cutting right to the deep questions. Uh, I mean, this is this is incredibly insightful. Um, I think 
Oh, man. There's a few aspects there that I think really resonated with me. Um, I think there's the imagination aspect, the the open-endedness that is kind of like one of the core things of role-playing games that like uh, I, I really try hard not to, to define role-playing games, but uh, as close as I can get to like a functioning, you know, practical definition, part of a role-playing game is the fact that we say things about a fictional situation and the what we say about the fictional situation affects the rules and the rules affect that fiction back in, you know, like this is basically Vincent's kind of uh, loop of, of uh, Apocalypse World. And so that was the first time I had played a game like that, where, you know, if I was playing um, Magic with Isaac, because we'd played a lot of Magic before, uh, and like we, you know, I have a card that looks really cool, and I'm like, yeah, this Phyrexian's going to eat your elf. And like the rules don't change because of that fiction. Uh, whereas it, we were sitting there playing and I could be like, yeah, like I, I, uh, fumble my knife, like I'm going to drop it and then like recover it and stab the guy and surprise him. And, and sure we were very new to this. We didn't know how to really make that like function rules wise, but it was cool to be able to say that. Well, you um, can say it out loud, which is, sounds silly, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that interaction with people, like there, there's a portion of role-playing games that really is like permission to say funny stuff or not, not funny always, but like say, say imaginative stuff. Um, and so that imaginative aspect I think was one big side of it. And then I think also kind of the game side of it, I've never been much for kind of rules, min maxing kind of stuff, but I'm definitely the kind of person who loves new rules content and figuring out new and interesting ways to like use this stuff. And I think that's part of why, uh, D 20 definitely kind of bit me like pretty, pretty well because everybody had these things. Most of them didn't work, but like, yeah, whatever I was interested in, somebody had made their cheap book of it and it was probably even in a store somewhere. Um, and so I had supplements on all kinds of stuff. I had the, the box set for playing, uh, like biblical era Middle East. Uh, I had uh, a book of pirates. I had a book on, yeah. you know, like deities that are powered by their believers and all of those things kind of came together in the games that I was running. Um, and, and frankly, most of those ideas, like, you know, buy an entire splat book for 20 bucks or whatever, get it, like read through it and be amazed by all these ideas. And then it would last for about two sessions and then it'd move on to something else anyway. Um, <laughs> But Did yeah, you that, find yourself uh, having a little bit of system ADD or setting ADD or um, um, like, yes and no subsystem, I guess, subsystem AD, AD, uh, I, I'm going to call it AD. We're talking now. about advanced Dungeon and Dragons. I know, I'm going to call it, yeah. <laughs> um, but like there was definitely, because it was D20, it was, it was kind of nice. Most of these things were, were relatively low lift to, to. Um, drop into another game. And so we would just kind of keep on uh, dropping in these pieces. So like the, probably one of the longest games that I ran are kind of, there was a meta plot or or not, let's not call it a plot. There was no like desired resolution, but the the concept of the game was the player characters uh, had found this um, deity that was basically dying because it didn't have followers and they became basically proselytizers to power up this deity to save the world uh a little bit of final fantasy in there which you know a little american gods yeah Uh, uh, yeah. that i got to later but yeah yeah um so so that was kind of the overall thing but 
Uh, oh, and sorry, the other important part of this was that it was kind of sort of Spelljammer at the same time. Uh, there were like flying ships and we could go to kind of different planes slash worlds to some degree, um, which gave us a lot of permission to, you know, whichever thing I had just been reading would totally be the next thing we played. Uh, and so for a while, it was kind of swashbuckling pirates because I got, uh, I think it's called Skull and Bones or something. It was uh, Green Green Ronin, maybe, or, or one of those companies. It was a pretty decent supplement. It had some cool stuff. But instead of actually like playing pirates, we just like ripped off little pieces of those rules and sprinkled them into this game and then forgot about them about three sessions later. Um, and so we, we did that for all kinds of stuff. I still actually have a lot of my, my D20 stuff on the shelf behind me. And occasionally I'll look back through it and I'm like, uh, you know, what, what am I ever going to do with this again? Uh, but there's a, I mean, it's not most of my D20 stuff. Most of that right. got given away, but there's still a few things there that I'll probably still never use, but at least have like fond memories of, especially some of the late period D20. There was a, a late, uh, Wizards of the Coast book actually with, that was all, alternate magic systems like one class per um oh, and so cool. there were some that were like uh kind of enchanter type things there was uh, take on the warlock kind of like uh, at will spell casting and this was all just like all in one book released really pretty late in their 3.5 by then uh product cycle and it had so many great ideas. Like someday, I, I've always told myself that someday I'm going to turn some of those into Dungeon World playbooks. Uh, but I am probably the sole audience for that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so how about now, and I know this, Sage, because I've listened to some of your podcasts um, and, and read a few things that you've put out there. Um, so you've explained to me, and I understand your your love of um, the, the soft, what I call the softer side, which I hate the term, but I haven't come up with a better one, right? The role-playing aspect of role-playing games. But you also seem to have a definite interest in the crunch aspect of it, too, that the mechanical aspect of it as well. Where does that come from? Um, I mean, so part of it comes from from my background. Like uh, I uh, like have a degree in computer. Well, I have two degrees in computer science and I, I work with computers all the time. So like that kind of uh, systems, system design and uh, <laughs> probability to some point, I I had to take probability in college and was awful at it, like awful. But when it came to discrete probability, it all made sense because I was thinking of dice. Uh, so like, uh, yeah, I all those things kind of come together. And I think part of it for me is that um, without the mechanical aspects of it, uh, there's there's less of a springboard. Like, um, you know, if I, even with folks that I really like gaming with, if we just sat around and tried to do the um, fireside, like, uh, I guess my, my wife only calls them beep stories because you beep when you're done and the next person takes over, um, that wouldn't be nearly as fun. Like, there there's something about providing some constraints on it that actually makes it more interesting to me than if uh, this was just a, a wide open say whatever you want and that's what happens. Um, and so th those, I guess, finding the mesh between those, finding the ways that mechanics can drive the fiction and that fiction can drive the mechanics, because that is, as far as I can tell, pretty much the unique thing in role-playing games, like that that the, that feedback cycle um, and yeah. finding the different ways to plug into that. And, uh, you know, we've already mentioned Vincent Baker several times, but his insights into Apocalypse World are part of what really crystallized that for me. 
Uh, until then, I think I, I didn't quite understand this as well. And over time, um, through Vincent's work and uh, John as kind of a an interpreter of it, I've, I've at least come to my own understanding of it. And it uh, gives me a lot more appreciation, honestly, for, for even uh, games that are maybe surprising to some people that i'd be excited about uh you know i'm i'm, I'm a huge fan of of early editions of D, for example uh which sometimes surprises people and i'm always kind of like really like i i co-created an entire game that's like a love letter to D. uh what what did you think i was into yeah. um and uh like high randomness stuff like uh Dungeon Crawl Classics. I, I love uh lots of messy dice mechanics and, and all that stuff. Um right now that I have I've been playing in the longest game I've played in for, for years, probably since I've had kids. Uh and I'm playing the one ring. Uh which, oh, no kidding. Yeah, like it's is a game that on the one hand, has a lot of things that you'd look at and be like, oh Sage would love that, but it also has a lot of things that you'd look at and be like Sage is going to bounce off this real hard. Uh, and, yeah. and indeed, I, I played it once and bounced. Like, I ran a game for, for my old gaming group, uh, John and Paul and Shannon, and they and it didn't work for us. We played about three sessions and we're just like, why? This isn't for us. Uh, and now I'm playing with, with some good old friends. Like, this is a silver lining on being in a pandemic so that I get more online gaming and means I get to reconnect with folks. And uh, we play every weekend and we've been, we're about halfway through the, the huge darkening of Merkwood campaign, and I, I love that oh, system. That's so cool. Yeah, and so like, yeah, a slightly successful Kickstarter uh, yeah, for geez. free league. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I I mean, I contributed my part to that Kickstarter. I even though by the time they ship anything, we will probably be almost done with the darkening of Merkwood. I looked at it and I was like, I've had such a good time with this game. I I can't not do it. Well, and um, I'm a shill for Free League. I, I love uh, I'm relatively new to their work and everything I'm coming across, whether it be Forbidden Lands or Aliens or anything. I'm just like, boy, they, they are putting out some quality stuff. Um, yeah, it, uh, it's impressive. So I, out of curiosity, we talk, you kind of touched on it a little bit, Sage, but um, when you think of gaming, is there any non RPG gaming that you enjoy? Is there board games that you enjoy or um, anything along those lines? Is it pretty much RPGs? Um, oh man, that, that is a, a deep rat hole to go down. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned, uh, my, well, I guess it's still technically my podcast. We haven't produced an episode in a long time, uh, but that, that was called another question. And my co-host there is my good friend, Adam, not the Adam from Dungeon World, different Adam. Uh, and we play a lot of board games together. He introduced me to the wonders of uh, GMT Games, which is this company that produces very heavy uh, war games. Um, so in particular, we uh, just played through a game of um, Here I Stand, which is my absolute favorite game. Uh, it is a huge, complex, asymmetric board game of the, the wars of religion around the Reformation. Uh, and so you have uh, the English, the French the Habsburgs, the Papacy, the Protestants, and the Ottomans all pursuing victory. Uh, can, like There are some things that are common between them. There's some control points on the board, and there are some things that are unique to each of them. So like the French uh, really just want to make art and have awesome chateaus, and so they can spend one of their actions just being like, I oh, make some art. Um, and if you're the Pope, you can work on building St. Peter's and just being very papal. And like uh, the interactions are all 
it, it's this was one of the tightest games we've ever had. We had several factions that were like vying for the lead until the Ottomans uh, managed to auto win. And anyway, they, they, once you get me talking about board games, it's almost as bad as role play games. Oh, uh, that's funny. GMT, yeah. that's some that's some hardcore shit right there, man. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not like Settlers Catan. Like that's some serious board gaming. Oh yeah, yeah. The the their series that uh, first got me interested there is uh, the coin series, which are all counterinsurgency games. Uh, that I mean, on the one hand, on a, a kind of like moral personal level, uh, some of the ideas behind the the idea of counterinsurgency are are problematic to me. But the yeah. games are amazing in uh, giving me some amount of empathy, even for the sides that I would not normally pursue because they're set up asymmetrically so that this isn't, uh, just a combat game of like, you know, I'm a poppy farmer and you're the government and you're going to burn down my fields and I'm going to try and fire guns at you. It's actually, well, I'm a poppy farmer. All I care about is making money and be able to support my people. And all this political unrest is bad for that. And so, you know, I don't care too much who's actually winning. I just want my money, uh, which comes usually with stability. And then each other faction hooks into that in different ways. Uh, and so, you know, the, the one that I'm alluding to here is um, a distant plane, which is uh, Afghanistan. And so if you're the U.S. government in that game, you are trying to stabilize things and withdraw your forces. So you want to have as few cubes on the board as you can and have things be stable. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that overlaps somewhat with the the warlords, the, the poppy farmers who also want stability so they can make money. Um, but they you're also in conflict with them in that, like them making money is likely to upset the control that you're interested. In. Anyway, these are these are all very heavy, interesting games that uh, in some ways have influenced my role playing game design. Uh, they they. To me, the dynamics there, the, the, the point where you point people not quite at each other, but uh, slightly past each other is a really mm-hmm. interesting setup for, for role-playing games, even if it's not competitive. You know, there's a thing in, um, that you see actually in early D&D design where the uh, different classes are in some ways thinking about different things, uh, like skills are basically a, a thief thing to start with. Like that isn't, you know, everybody else is working through here with their own set of tools. And the thief is the only one who can do these certain special roles. Um, and in that sense, you're kind of playing that asymmetric game to a degree. Uh, you know, I can understand why in, in later editions you make it like, well, of course, everybody should have a chance to listen through a door or whatever. Um, but it is really interesting when you have these, these kind of clear lanes that play into each other indirectly and and uh, give that kind of asymmetric feel to the game. If anything, my my biggest complaint, I just talked about how much I love third edition, but my biggest complaint is that it's a very, like, it's designed the way a computer scientist would design it. It's this very uh, architected, regimented uh, system where everything fits together in a very preset way, yeah. um, which is great, but it also doesn't leave much of that. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because you say that out loud. I'm saying like, yeah, you can almost in three five, you can almost see the bracketing right of the code mm-hmm. as they as they discreetly backslashed and finished, you know, segment A and went to segment B. That's that's uh, that's very interesting, and it, and it's also kind of cool. You know, you talk about your interest and uh, love of early D and D, and then you talk about your love of GMT when when D and D came from wargaming, right? So yep. I, I mean, the marriage and the progress there. Um, is is absolutely fascinating. Um, oh, that's I cool. Mean, 
you've actually hit on my my secret kind of third interest in between these, which is uh, Kriegspiel. Uh, so I have like, no idea what that is. Yeah, <laughs> that that is my chance to be a good guest here, hopefully, and and drop some knowledge. So uh, Kriegspiel is the step between chess and D and D, basically. Uh, so if you try to draw the the most direct influence line to D, it runs through um early chess in india uh that eventually comes to europe and uh germany starts uh well not germany at the time but the the um oh i'm gonna mess up my historical knowledge here whatever some some Generals in Germany uh, start realizing that uh, part of the problem of training officers is that you don't fight that often anymore. And so you need a way to teach strategy without uh, actually being in combat. Um, And so they start using Kriegspiel uh, as a way to do that, which starts out as basically chess with a few modifications. You have like a gridded board and and move things around. Um, And then over time, uh, there's kind of a counter argument there called free free Kriegspiel, uh, which becomes a um, basically a arbitrated war game where uh, two sides may or can issue any orders they want and they will be interpreted by a, a GM, basically, who will then describe how things turn out and, and keep on running the war game um, with, with rules involved. Uh, and right. like you, you know, I say any rule, I'm sure these being like uh, German officers, they're not going to do the the uh, like Kobayashi Maru kind of uh, real, real stretch on that. But basically, it becomes something that very closely resembles a uh, role-playing game and then that plays into uh kind of further developments and eventually we get to the war games that Gygax and Arneson were familiar with and then uh they start pulling in like they were familiar with these kind of um refereed war games and that's a big part of where early D&D comes from it's basically a refereed war game where you've zoomed in down to the person scale instead of the the uh commander so um Arneson's early, uh, or sorry, not not Arneson's um, early work, but uh, in Braunstein, uh, which is, was an early kind of scenario slash game along these lines, you see people. It's it's you can see uh, French Revolution role or um, war gaming coming together with this kind of like person level, uh, like embodiment of a role and some degree of um kind of creative problem solving all all together so yeah um kriegspiel is uh like i've i've played in several attempts at doing kriegspiel in various ways um but i think it's a little bit of a a forgotten classic i mean not that you, you well, can't it look sounds up hipster as hell dude it's like super <laughs> retro but um that sounds really interesting yeah. and um you know i uh my one of my other big interests is uh, miniature gaming miniature war gaming you know uh mm-hmm. malifaux uh that type of stuff and sure. um a lot of people that don't understand the history of miniature war gaming don't realize that it used to be a three-player game, which is exactly what you're talking about which was you your opponent and the arbitrator the judge mm-hmm. who 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 helped tell the story and actually was a source of resolve 
um, mm-hmm. within the systems itself. But I've never now I've got a whole now my Google is going to blow up as I like learn about this. This is yeah. fascinating. So um, my my suggestion for more on this because I was not anticipating talking about this and have not done it justice um, is "Playing at the World" by John Peterson. Um, it is kind of the essential text uh, to my mind on um, all of the flows of of design leading up to D and and so there's there's that wargaming kriegspiel kind of thing that's obviously one of the biggest ones there's also um play by mail play by mail games yeah uh, and diplomacy uh, as well there as kind of like uh, that's a game yeah that is a game um and uh he identifies a couple others but yeah and then he he does some deep dives on things like uh the the inventiveness of having both a to hit roll and uh hit points most systems up to that point were kind of using one or the other it was either you know both sides lose x or roll and if you get over the other side's destroyed and uh neither of those is a great fit for kind of person level dramatic stuff and so that combination is is a major interesting part of why D works it's it's a wonderful book he has um i'll link to it in the show notes man that sounds really yeah. fascinating it, really really fascinating. and he has a new one that uh is about when people started calling them role-playing games because obviously when when this started it, it there wasn't a distinction between role-playing game and war game uh, yeah. there are lots of people who said like why would i want to play a game with fantasy stuff in it but that was the objection not kind of the you know this is a role-playing game uh so you've got a really interesting uh the the title there implies the that there's this shift that's hard to pin down where we kind of grew a new thing out of these existing things um and and i find all of john's research incredibly interesting and it's always led me to this main question that um at some point i need to send john and see if he'll you know, maybe tackle it in one of his future books. I've always wondered if there's a any kind of parallel development here. Uh, you know, for for pretty much every role playing game that you or I or pretty much anybody who listens to this is aware of, will have been created either directly derived from D anD D or uh, with at least knowledge of D anD um, D. And it seems like there must be somebody out there who has come up with a similar idea at some point and uh you know in some sort of parallel development that didn't have the same you know commercial success in the english speaking world uh because that's you know pretty much what i'm gonna know um so yeah this has always been kind of my my like white whale research project is what what parallel development is there out there yeah talk about stuff i've never thought about sage like that's a great point like i wonder like is there Wow, that's interesting because wargaming exists when you go to Eastern culture, right? I, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, or or Middle Eastern culture. I mean, that's where chess comes from, right? Yep. And so, God, that's really fascinating. Like, are there like where did role playing like it had to have happened, right? And yeah. and, and, it, and it just never, you know, never never formed up and never came together and and launched an entire industry. But but I would imagine with enough research, says you could find the seeds, right? Depend on like how far back you want to go, like which which branching point do you want to take? Like uh, if we were talking about something through most of Europe and Asia, you would probably actually have some knowledge of chess uh, or, or right. you know, one of the chess derivatives as a starting point that um, if this was a role playing game that looks kind of like what we're used to with a lot of fighting and stuff, it would almost certainly have some, you know, circumstantial link to chess. 
Whereas uh, one of the best leads that I've had that I've been unable to pursue is there are uh, some Native American uh, storytelling games that seem to have some, you know, there, there's a difference between a storytelling game that's kind of the like uh, past the, the stick kind of thing versus something that has some constraints on where the story has to go. Structure, yeah. Yeah, some structure. Um, and it, that. I found a few threads that suggest that there are some some games like this, uh, and I, I grew up in the Southwest. I've always wanted to be able to like go back there and spend some time and like hopefully do this in a way that is respectful of people. You know, I don't want yeah. uh, my understanding is that some of these games may also feel like um, important cultural things that you know yep. out, aren't things to be shared with an outsider uh, casually. And so, you know, I, uh, anyway, this is all my kind of, you know, if I win the lottery and I can just, uh, <laughs> put my money to whatever person I want, I'm going to fund research into like the, the parallel development of this stuff. Like you've totally got my wheels turning. So now I'm thinking, so now I'm thinking your lineage concept, right? I'm totally, I'm, I'm smoking what you're growing right now. So like, then I think, okay, so if we, if we, if we think. Western culture chess, right? And we think about that line and how that line led to the war gaming, led to, um, was it, uh, HG Wells, right? You know, yep. I mean, all of HG Wells is miniature, the creator of miniature games that that's, that that's home that started from chess and him wanting to expand on the concepts of chess. Then we go parallel to that and we say, well, then there's go and mm-hmm. think about, think about go as it being so different, right? And so if you take go as the basis, where does that lead? And how does that change how we think about things? Oh, Christ, this is this is cool. Yeah, no, and like, <laughs> cool. has, has, have people done that? Like, there, right. there's a lot of um, kind of cultural, uh, I want to say anthropology, but that may not be quite the right domain. But like, there, there's a lot of study of, of different, even living cultures that uh, would be really interesting here that I'm ill-equipped yeah. to do. But I, I hope that someday... Uh, somebody will pursue this idea and and explore the um, like the the parallels there. Like this feels uh, this may be too big of an idea for me to really support, but it feels like there is something kind of fundamentally human about this kind of uh, wanting to pretend and share stories in There's a no question generated that, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I would imagine that that. Gygax and Arneson weren't the only people who got to the point of wanting to add a procedural element to kind of a fictional situation and then see what the outcome is. Um, yeah, I, I'm just not sure who else did it. Well, and think about this too, because and um, and there's people that may not realize this, and this and this in no way takes away from what Gygax and him made, right? But they kind of backed into role playing. Yes. Um, and, and, and they, and they really did it because their, their players pushed them there. And a lot of people don't realize that like they were war gamers. They liked playing war games and Chainmail was their attempt to, to make war games. And then people pushed them to say like, we want to tell some stories and like, if we want to like loosen things up a little bit and stuff like that. And if you go back and you read about the progress of where D and D came from, and again, I'm not taking anything away from what they did, but they kind of backed into it and they were kind of pushed into it in its own way, which is fascinating in and of itself. Right. Um, and again, to your point, that parallel. Yeah, the the D&D as a role playing game is as emergent as the gameplay of D&D is in a lot of ways. Yes. Like there, there's a degree of emergence here of a genre as well from the the, the starting ideas uh, and. Oh man, I, <laughs> this is going to sound bad because it it 
compares me and guy uh, me and adam and guy gax arneson which is not my actual intention in terms of like quality <laughs> of contribution <laughs> or size of contribution but they're the thing that we found with dungeon world is definitely there there are some ideas that end up being kind of lightning in a bottle that was a phrase that a, a friend of mine used that uh has always stuck with me uh, because I, I've come to terms with the fact that anything that I do after Dungeon World is likely not going to be anywhere. I mean, nothing I've done so far has been as big. It, nothing I do ever again may be as big. And I, I'm cool with that now uh, because I've realized that some ideas, you're just, you know, the right people in the right place at the right time with the right idea and everything comes together and it all hits, it clicks. Uh, and to some degree that is Dungeons and Dragons. Like the, I, I, it doesn't take away anything from the quality of the work or the significance of the work, but uh, there's, you know, the, that same idea landing with a different group of people at a different time. Like Gygax, for example, is very connected with all these uh, uh, gaming scenes, basically, uh, you know, sending letters into magazines and publishing uh, his opinions there and everything. And that without that connection, that game probably would have stayed in Arneson's basement. Um, yeah. Well, and it, and it connects to Dungeon World 2, which we're going to get into it. I don't want to spoil that. But like, you know, without the work that Meg and Vincent were doing and the fact that you and Adam had uh, a connection to the early stages of the work that they were doing, we wouldn't have Dungeon World in the way it is. Right. And that, and. Yeah. We could we could attribute a lot of that to just you backing into that, too. Right. And being lucky that you were there when you were there and connected the way you were connected. And that doesn't take away from the work that you guys did. And 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 it's sometimes um, people struggle with uh, admitting that they were lucky or in the right place at the right time because they because they it, it can often feel threatening. Like, well, that doesn't, you know, I, I worked hard like like what you guys what you guys made with Dungeon World took a lot of heart, heart and soul. But you can, both can exist at the same time. You can say, mm -hmm. you know what? We were lucky. We were in the right place at the right time. And we worked our asses off and we created some good shit. And, and both of those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, I, I kind of led here with the, uh, the story about meeting John Harper. Like if it weren't yep. the fact that my aunt happened to be friends with his girlfriend at the time, I would have moved out here. I probably would have never encountered those folks. Uh, you know, through meeting John Harper, I heard about, uh, the small local convention that he kind of helped organize go play Northwest. And it was at Go Play Northwest that I met uh, Adam Coble. And mm -hmm. we started collaborating on Dungeon World uh, because, you know, this is kind of the uh, not-so-secret history of Dungeon World. It started out as uh, Apocalypse D&D, a game by Tony Dowler. Um, and so at that Go Play Northwest, uh, Tony ran Apocalypse D&D for me. And at the time, it was like... 10 pages of single-sided Word document printed out and a AD&D player's handbook. Um, <laughs> oh, and some of his maps because he's an artist. He, he did art for Dungeon World. And I thought it was so great. I was like, do you have another print off of this so that I can run it later? And so I ended up running it for Adam Cobol and some of his friends who were down from Vancouver. And uh, afterwards, I, I basically asked Tony, like, can I... Uh, I think I started out with, like, just can I make some playbooks for this, some character sheets because at the time you know you just kind of wrote there were some rules and you kind of made it up as you went and as i was making the character sheets i decided it needed to stand alone a little bit more i couldn't you know be referencing get out your ad and d player's handbook uh and then eventually figured out that you know putting the name apocalypse D, &D on it was um a problem problematic so, yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> so, you know, we, we kept on developing from there. And, and uh, I, I think I tweeted out some early pictures and Adam was like, this looks really cool. Do you want feedback on it? And I was like, yeah, Isn't yeah. Something. And then we started collaborating more and more. And like at the time, uh, you know, both of us had jobs that were, were not eating up a lot of our daytime hours. Uh, and so we would spend a lot of time emailing back and forth on debating dungeon world design ideas, basically. Uh, and Fascinating. do that for a lot of our day. And then, you know, eventually we got to the point where we're like, hey, we should, we should kickstart this. Uh, and, you know, we thought our audience was, uh, we were both active on a, a forum called Story Games. Um, and we thought our audience was most of people from that forum. We were expecting, you know, if we were lucky, a few hundred people. Uh, and so we set what we thought was a little bit of an aggressive funding goal. And we launched the, the uh, campaign one morning uh, before I drove to work. Uh, so, like, I basically hit launch campaign and then walked out the door and drove to work. And I had about a, I don't know, 20, 30 minute commute. Uh, by the time I got to work, it was fully funded. Uh, and yeah, we we immediately were like, oh, my gosh, uh, it turns out a lot more people have heard of our game than we thought. Um, and now we got to make the stupid game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we, we were in a situation where we had most everything nailed down. But there were, yeah. you know, it was interesting. There was a few small or well, things that felt small, but were actually very big to the overall feel of the game that we decided relatively late. So like one of yeah. those that stuck in my mind is um, how to deal with damage from multiple monsters, because we're, you know, we're not D&D. We don't have kind of like turn order where each monster is going to take a specific number of attacks. No initiative. Yeah, there's no initiative. So you have to have some idea of, you know, you're fighting uh, three wolves, three like werewolves, whatever. Uh, and how is that different than fighting one werewolf? Uh, you know, is it you're facing a modifier to your rolls? You know, when you take damage, how much more damage are you taking? And we we kind of went back and forth on different ways to do this. And that ends up uh, implying a lot of tone to the game. Because we ended up yeah. with something that scales damage pretty loosely for a large number of creatures, which tended to make uh, Dungeon World feel much more kind of uh, heroic or super heroic because you can wade into a bunch of goblins and each one's not adding that much damage. You're you're probably good, especially if you've picked up a little bit of uh, damage reduction in some way or, or yep. you know decent set of armor. Um, and so that that was actually a relatively late decision in the game. We had a lot of the overall like class architecture and stuff locked in. We had most of the abilities. We had played a lot, um, and we just kept on going back and forth on this little thing that we felt like was this little remaining design problem, but in a lot of ways was saying what kind of game this is. Uh, and so, yep. yeah, yeah. Now when I do design, I'm much more aware of how some of these small decisions are actually some of your biggest decisions in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, th there was also a lot of discussions there that uh, flew over my head a little bit about, the um some of the kind of implicit biases and stuff of Dungeons and Dragons and what how much are we tackling those? You know, at the time, the the game I'm still proud of, it's it's as good a as progressive a game as I could make at the time. Uh but looking back on it, there are a lot of things that now I'm like, yeah, we've got like 
hordes of orcs and stuff, and that is uh, not not where I'd want to do things now. Um, yeah, and, and I actually I'm glad you bring that up because I want to do a segment on that, Sage, because sure. I think it's very very a, fa- a very fascinating discussion, and you are an incredible test case for this discussion. Uh-huh. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a I'm going to take a quick break. When we get back, um, I'm going to sure. go I'm going to rewind a little bit because there's some origins of Dungeon World I want to de- delve a little bit deeper on that you kind of glossed over. And I'm not going to let you get away with that. Um, and uh, so we're going to talk about the making of Dungeon World, where Dungeon World came from, um, how the pieces all came together. Um, but I'm also going to come back to what Sage started to bring up because it's a fascinating subject. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Keith Suderman, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. You'll never mistake me for a competitive player, but I really enjoy the analysis and the advice I get from Tabletop Talk. You should be a patron too. Head on over to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or just click the link in the show notes below. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to some of the original patrons that started us on this journey. Special thanks to Jesse Ellis, Sam Newman, Nick Westbrook, Jim Ortiz, Kevin Smith, Keith Suderman, Matthew Riddle, Dane Leergaard, Jeremy Peace, Wookie Gunner, Chris Blue, Voslov, Kim Otto Nielsen, Rolf Randall, John Haas, Cody Hyatt, Michael Roper, Ambrose Ingram, Pudgy Hobbit, Kaiser and Crimson, Brandon Sommer, Jason Reddy, Jason Burry, Kylie Woodland, Brian Schooner, Alan Voltz, and Owen. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis, and I appreciate it. So we we, we, we spoiled it a little bit, Sage, uh, kind of where Dungeon World came <laughs> I from, know. but I want to go backwards just a little bit. Um, so... Was the was your first exposure to apocalypse world mechanics that that one word page document or had you smelled it before? No, um, I was lucky enough to have some of the very earliest print editions of Dungeon World, uh, or sorry, <laughs> Apocalypse World. I had some of the earliest print editions of Dungeon World too, but that one's less surprising. That's good. I'm glad you did. Um, yeah, the uh, earliest print editions of Apocalypse World, thanks to uh, mostly John Harper. Uh, so, you know, this is again, one of those things where I was very lucky and, and this is in a lot of ways, the difference with, um, a lot of designers who, who don't get the recognition and credit that they should, that they happen to not have family who introduced them to John Harper because they 
think that all role-playing games are the same. Uh, like, you know, I, I really lucked into something there, and then, you know, John knows Vincent, and so got, uh, you know, some, I think I still have it back there on my shelf. There's a very early um, release of uh, Apocalypse World where the covers are made out of... Uh, something that the print shop just had like laying around some like each one is a little different and then like uh, a real simple tape uh like binding basically and like each um i forget what they call them each set of pages is kind of like clearly a separate set of pages yep um and so that early ashcan edition was uh like i John Harper went to some convention down in Portland, I believe, and came back with one of these for each of us and was like, here, here's Vincent's new thing. So you get a bootleg copy of Apocalypse World. And I guess my first question is, did you actually play it? Yeah, we, we played, though, mostly shorter games. Like, you know, the funny thing is, uh, across all this time, I've played a lot of Apocalypse World, but mostly very short games, like even, you know, one or two session kind of games. Do uh, you have a sense and, why that is? You know, I think part of it is that the system uh, definitely shines early. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think it actually diminishes later on, but it's a game that delivers so soon it that does. you don't necessarily have to play a lot of it. You know, I, I mentioned earlier playing the One Ring, and that was definitely like several sessions in before it really felt like uh, the game was, was running on all cylinders, kind of. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, most Apocalypse World games that I've played... Uh, five, ten minutes in, everything's rolling. There, there's something about the leading questions and the playbooks and the setups that come out of them that that just gets you moving so quickly uh, and, and tend to push things towards uh, pretty dramatic situations early on. Yep. Um, and, and part of it also is probably just the, like, my gaming schedule. Yeah, not too long after... Um, Dungeon World was published. Uh, I changed jobs and like had a lot less uh, free time during the day at work. Uh, and then uh, eventually, not too much longer after that, uh, my my first daughter was born, and like I definitely pivoted towards. Uh, I don't know how often I can game. Like let's yeah. let's just fit in what we can. Yep. Um, and so yeah, a lot of games that I've played have been you know one to two sessions. Um, but, you know, like Apocalypse World definitely showed up really well in those first early sessions. And it made me pretty excited when I heard Tony had this Apocalypse d pitch. So I'd be curious, Sage, I mean, coming from the, the role-playing games before that, I, I'd be very interested if you can remember. It might be hard to because uh, it's been such an integral part of your creative process. But like, do you remember your first impressions? Because it was radical, absolutely radical what Vincent put out there, Vincent and Meg put out there. What, what, do you remember what it was like the first time you saw it? Oh, man. The funny thing is the thing that stands out to me the most are the misconceptions that I had even relatively far into Dungeon World development. Interesting. Uh, so, for example, I really didn't get uh, moves from the GM's perspective, like GM moves. Like, I, I kind of, you know, uh, got the overall idea. But then when it came to monsters, um, at first, every monster had like a player facing move. Like that was part of our like monster template was every monster had something about like when you uh, stare into the eyes of a Medusa roll plus one. And like a lot of them were just thin, weak moves. Um, <laughs> but it was because you how, had to make one because you had to make one. And it was yeah. kind of how, you know, I, I felt like monsters had to have things that made them special. Uh, and so, you know, now I think I have a better I kind of thought that that was the way for the GM to to 
effectively describe something in the fiction was to give it a new move. And that is a good way for a GM to describe that, yeah. but it is uh, not the most economical or, or a quick one. Um, and it doesn't scale up to, to kind of like bestiary size things, which, you know, there's, right. there's a question to be said of, should we have had that many monsters in dungeon world? But I think the monsters get across a lot of the tone, like yep. they the writing there is, is evocative. Um, yeah. No, it, it, it very much is. And it, um, it takes a while to digest apocalypse world. And, um, what, um, uh, listeners already know, but you don't is, um, I discovered all of this a year ago uh, because I took 20 years off from role playing. So I, I stopped playing role playing games in my early 20s and then came back to it a year, year and a half ago. And I was like, holy shit, what have you people been doing while I was gone? <laughs> Some things have changed. And um, I remember my first time digesting Apocalypse World and, you know, missing a lot of it. And uh, Megan Vincent on the interview did a great job of helping me understand it a lot. Um, but the GM moves was one of them where I was just like, well, you know, why are we putting why are we limiting the dungeon master that way or the game master that way? Um, but then you start start digging into it a little bit. And you understand what was happening there. So you, you you're exposed to that. Uh, apocalypse world you play it a little bit you start to digest it understand it um then you sit down and you play this D D marriage apocalypse dungeon dun dungeons and dragons uh you run into adam you start you run it for adam emails start coming back and forth at what point like if we were to forensically go back and do the kind of research you're going to do on parallel uh role playing <laughs> if we were to go back do you think that there was a moment where both you and adam realized i think we're going to make a game Oh man, um, there might have been, and it might have been different for each of us uh, because right. Adam and I are actually very different people. Like the fact that we ended up working together is, uh, I don't know, uh, a what? What is it like? The MythBusters guys kind of hate each other, but they, they, they. <laughs> I mean, I, Adam and I probably don't hate each other, but we're definitely no, like, like saying, a, a, yeah. an odd couple in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so uh, you know we. It's interesting because there's this phase of my life that was emailing with Adam several times every day. And and we were in that sense really close. But we're also like, especially once Dungeon World got out the door, we drifted apart pretty quick. Like yeah. we, we in some ways didn't have a lot in common other than this this creative effort. Um, but because of that, I, I don't know, you know, if I dug back, the funny part is it's, it's all in Gmail. So I still have all of it. There may have been a point <laughs> where there's that email that says like, I think we're making a game. Um, but to me, at least looking back on it without, you know, actually looking it up, I'm pretty sure it's when we started getting uh, more and more stories of people playing kind of all over the world. Um, the one that sticks with me the most, and I, I wish I could remember this guy's name uh, to kind of give him credit. Um, if I remember correctly, he was uh, an Australian ambulance driver, and he uh, sent us, or I forget whether he posted on the forum or sent us an email, uh, basically saying like, you know, I I forget how he even heard about Dungeon World. I think it was, you know, somewhat plugged into indie role-playing games. Uh, he had gone, I think, on a camp out with some friends because he didn't get that much time off. And it was really, uh, this was like a really important chance to get to reconnect with some old friends. And he had taken Dungeon World and like played it around a campfire or something. Yeah. And he just told us like, this was like, it was 
what brought me back together with these old friends and it made it feel like when we we had the the time to do this i'm probably not doing this story justice but at least this is my recollection of it and that kind of experience for folks was uh the point where i i realized that i definitely wanted to do this um mostly yeah. because I, I guess my uh kind of net metric for for dungeon world is i want it to be a net positive. And like, when I think about some of the things that I would go back and change, especially around some of the, the biases built into the game inherited from D and D, um, you know, I've, I've thought long and hard about, is this something that I still want to have out there? Like, you know, the, uh, Adam and I have a, a, basically both of us have to agree to do things and I'm not sure how it'd work if one of us, you know, absolutely felt something had to happen, but, um, the, the, I've never pushed it because the thing that I end up at is I, I think even with those things, we're probably still a, a net positive for, for folks overall. And, 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 you know, by being a net positive for people, hopefully a net positive in the world. And those kinds of stories were, uh, I don't know. They, they make me feel better than the, the royalty checks. Um, well, it, I mean, that's gotta be a struggle, man. Like, I mean, Especially when you have an awareness of what uh, of things that you identify now as the creator that you go back and go, that's that's problematic. And I, you know, and then you have to go through that. Um, I would imagine like, I don't know how to put this, man. Um, uh, the struggle to understand where you were back then and how much of it was conscious, subconscious and how much was it. um innocent for lack of a better word but you know not necessarily absolving yourself that's some complicated shit man that's some complicated shit yeah and and, you know i intentions don't matter in the larger world but to how i view myself and and how i uh view what i need to do going forward my intentions matter such at least in how intentions matter and how i can do better uh, yeah. and, and the thing that I felt pretty, even looking back on it, I, I believe that my intentions were, were good and that I was moving things forward as much as I understood them at the time. Uh, and right. the, the understanding that I've gained since then, it has been pretty tremendous. Uh, and I think I'm actually skipping ahead topics again. So like, I, I don't want to that, like, steal, that's okay. Uh, no, 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 yeah. no, that's good. And, and, you know, and I think part of it from the outside point of view, Sage, um, is um in doing that you've you've owned your shit um which i i appreciate uh because that's not easy to do um i struggle that (laughs) um and and dungeon world was made at a different time and it was made by a different person than i'm interviewing right now but that and and for you to identify and understand that there are problems i own those problems and i own the you know, I, I have learned from that and I have more to learn. Right. So you don't you don't out there proclaiming I've no I figured it all all the fuck out. Um, like all of that matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and all and and one thing you can't do is go back 10 years and rewrite Dungeon World. So um, but, you know, at the same time, Dungeon World changed role playing games, um, you know, and, and 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 brought a lot of people and, and still does brings a lot of people a lot of joy. So, yeah, that that's that's a lot to deal with, man. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, especially in the, the past year or so, it's been on my mind a lot. And it's uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot to unpack. And like that, the, the in some ways, the most 
interesting part of the dungeon world journey has been what to do with a success. Like the, the development process, I don't know. There's plenty of like interesting anecdotes along the way and, you know, times that I floated ideas that were absolutely awful and rightfully got, you know, what are you thinking? And then there were long threads about things that ended up not actually mattering and, and whatever, like lots of, lots of that. Um, but I, I feel like it's an, uh, I'm so lucky to have this experience of getting to know what it's like to kind of have that lightning in a bottle moment to, to have yep. this, this successful thing and be able to see where it goes. And like all of the, the wonderful people that's brought me into contact with, um, and like all the stories from folks about, you know, this game uh, helped me connect with my kids. This game brought back memories of my my childhood. This game, you know, just was a good time on a Friday night with with beer and pretzels. Like, I I really admire people like um, Vincent Baker and Meg Baker and uh, just Morningstar um, and uh, a, a ton of other designers who can make games that are interrogating. Uh, tougher subjects and are, uh, you know, really moving important conversations forward, I think, in a lot yep. of ways. Um, I'm not as skilled at that. And, like, I've kind of had to come to the, the <laughs> realization that, like... That you understand that, though. That's huge. My, <laughs> my niche, both in the games that I most gravitate towards playing and the games that I'm best at making, is definitely a bit more on the beer and pretzel side of things. And that doesn't, yep. like absolve uh, uh, me from any of the design or, or setting uh, things there. Like, it just means that my goal is going to be, uh, for the most part, like kind of light entertainment that is as, you know, uh, I don't know, I often think of it as palatable as possible. Because like, it, what I think of there is, um, if you take something like, uh, I've mentioned playing the One Ring, Tolkien has is kind of like deeply problematic in the uh, you know other othering of basically he's everybody not, evil. He's not kind of sage. Yeah. He is right. Yeah. He is. Let's be yeah. honest. And, and, and as is H.P. Lovecraft, right? Oh, um, and Lovecraft is like a whole yeah. other yeah. But um, but at the at the same time, that doesn't mean that what they created doesn't have value. And, and and it and it can't be taken. Um, there's uh, uh people that listen to my Dennis Detwiller uh interview who made Delta Green. He talks about you know taking taking H.P. Lovecraft and saying you know what you fuck you you racist piece of shit. I'm mm-hmm. gonna make something else yeah. <laughs> using your stuff. Um, and that's what a lot of people do with Tolkien too. Yeah. Well, and like the uh, Tolkien, it's interesting. Like Tolkien as a uh, provides a backdrop for uh, a especially in the movie adaptations, like a, a fantasy adventure like that, you know, there's there's a ton of uh, problematic stuff that goes into that. And then out of it, you get uh, I just rewatched Lord of the Rings recently. And like it still holds up in so many ways. It's fun to watch. Even when I, I look at the depiction of the the orcs in particular and I'm like, oh, I I don't want to like this but like uh it's it's super entertaining and then like you look at something like um star wars so uh, specifically a new hope just to like narrow it down because star wars can mean a lot of things and uh it it's still there are certainly problematic things like blowing up the death star is that a, a justifiable act but yep. at least the the bad guys there are people who uh you know are identified by what they are doing and and what they are wearing as opposed to like the the 
shape of their bodies. Uh, and, you know, the, well, the rank and file, we have some, you know, how culpable are you? Most of the uh, empire forces that are seen getting blown up are in the process of doing something actively harmful, uh, right. which again, kind of like there, there's a, to me, that becomes a, a easier thing to, um, enjoy and that like I can kind of look at it and be like you know this this certainly isn't a role model for how to live your life but it at least uh is providing some justification for these things that's a little easier to support correct and and, and I think there's a couple things there uh Sage there um one I mean there's the Kevin Smith uh you know there there, there were some union guys on the Death Star that uh-huh. died right you know <laughs> um which we laugh at but the he's in Typical Kevin Smith ways. He's he's doing two things at once, um, and it ties to what we've talked about a little bit. All of this can exist at the same time, right? Yeah. So so we can go back to Tolkien and and we can praise him and say, you know, holy, like hey, congratulations, you invented an entire form of fiction. Like that's kind of a big freaking deal, right? And 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 you you know you gave people a place to go. And a place to create and a place to build off of. I mean, like, like, and, you know, I, and I, I just, I just got done talking, you know, calling Tolkien a, uh, Tolkien a racist. I actually, I think I called HP Lovecraft was worse, <laughs> but, um, you know, Tolkien had problems. Right. Um, yeah. and, you know, and we can say he was a product of his time, um, which doesn't excuse anything. It explains some things. And I, and I think that one of the battles I'm having Sage, I guess this is, I shouldn't talk about this as journalists talk about me for a second. It's my fucking podcast. Um, uh- like I'm struggling with the fact that it's not black and white and, and several things can be true at the same time. HP Lovecraft is problematic and he changed how stories are told. And, and both of things, the, both of those things can be true. We can, we can look at, we can look at HP Lovecraft and go, he was an amazing artist who created worlds and concepts that, that, that change everything, you know, and, he was kind of a, a racist piece of shit. Um, and all of that can be true. And, and, and that's, that's hard to convey on Twitter. <laughs> that's hard to, you know, and it's real easy to be draconian about it. Um, and it's a lot harder to try to find space for all of that. Is that making any sense? Yeah, it, it is. And I think the, it's interesting to even go a step beyond that. Like, um, it's interesting to me to try to figure out how much of, uh, or in what ways is how much implies there's like a quantity of racism that I can measure or something, <laughs> right. but like, you know, in, in what I've ways, got four, I've got yeah. four racism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, the scale there. Oh man. I, I'm, we I'm really got to find the scale. Yeah. Uh, the, the, what, what about, uh, let's say Lovecraft, uh, because I think he was kind of the, the more brilliant here, um, is, showing through in his work in a way that actually not just it's true that both of these things are true, but potentially even led to some of the recognition of his work. You know, I, I think this is probably a bit of a stretch, but there are some of his stories that I certainly read as his anxieties about his perceived uh, dangers of, I mean, basically dark skinned people um, and, and pasting those into a cosmic horror and, you know, is is a portion of why that resonated with some of his earlier readers that they shared that. And like, how yep. do we deal with the legacy that that comes with that? Um, That's very true. And very yeah, true. Uh, like this is this is stuff that I, I 
I think about a lot. And like, I think yeah. uh, my, the best thing that I've been able to come up with since I've, I've been lucky enough to have this kind of lightning in the bottle experience and have, you know, a relative platform here is to use that to hopefully amplify the voices of others. And like, uh, you know, I, I have a, a, a a late start here in a way just from being a a straight white guy raised in america you know i uh try to do the work and everything but i am not the kind of person that should be like leading the charge here uh and so you know i i find these things very interesting because i i obviously think about analyzing media a lot as we've seen for our conversation so far uh but like you know ultimately this is the kind of thing that uh I hope people smarter than me find ways to to engage with and you know hopefully reach people with. Uh, you're you're completely right. Fitting this into a tweet is is not very practical. Uh, yep. But well, and it's um one of the things that like in my journeys, right? Because I'm <laughs> spoiler alert, I'm a old white guy too. Um, you know, like one of the things that I've been trying to do is um as soon as I I and I think everybody does has that initial pushback emotion, uh, that, 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 that fight of the fight and flight reaction. Right. And one of the things that I've been doing is like, when I see something that causes me to want to defend, like that, that urge to defend, like I'm now learning to start as soon as I feel that going, wait a second, where is that coming from? And what am I really defending? Right? Like what is really happening here? Um, and, and that's helped me in that progress as well. And I would imagine for you, Sage, when, because people have come at Dungeon World, mm-hmm. um, and, um, you have had to have those times where you're like, whoa, 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 you know, like, like that, that, that reaction, right? Yeah. Uh, at your creation being attacked and, and being able to sort through that. Um, like, did you find yourself? Well, let's not even talk about some of the heavier shit we're talking about. Like, um, people, people got Dungeon World when it first mm-hmm. came out and said it was garbage. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and what was your reaction to that? And and I'm talking like they just said it was a shitty game, right? Not, oh, yeah, not yeah. that it was oh, not yeah, that it was like, trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my my reaction to that it was actually to collect all of the worst reviews uh, about him and turn them into a page on my old site. I don't think it's live anymore. Called um, Praise for Dungeon World. And so uh, there's, it's still, at least last I checked, available in the Internet Archive. I don't think I have a live copy of it anymore, partially because some of the people who said awful things are people who I didn't want to be repeating their words, even if it was <laughs> uh, even if the ones about Dungeon World were just, you know, awful. Uh, so, you know, we got stuff like it's um, Gramsian socialism in game form. Uh, it's, Phenomenal. Yeah. Like people people had strong reactions and part of that is is due to um rpg scene politics for lack of a better you know i mentioned yep. we were active on the story games forums and there was people who viewed that as as pretentious um there there were certainly all their actual problems with it i don't think pretentiousness was top five or ten um uh, and so, you know, coming out of that and being related to Apocalypse World and, and all these things like there, it, it came with some amount of uh, identification that, that certainly led people to take the game a certain way. Um, and, you know, my th- this actually runs through a lot of things that I do, both game design and, and kind of my day job and, and my personal life. 
for whatever reason, I'm a person who's very okay with um, tough criticism, I guess, uh, and and just kind of rolling with that and trying to take what I can that's actually actionable out of it and just kind of letting the rest of it, uh, you know, I, to some degree, like, yeah. Now, that's a learned that's a learned skill in my experience, Sage. Is that, was that a learned skill for you? Or do you think there's something inherently that's allowed you to be that way? Because I had to learn it. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it, it must be learned. And I wish that I could think of more uh, where where I got that. That's you know, calling your mom. Yeah, call home. Actually, you know, the funny part is uh, I was talking about my friend Isaac, who introduced me to role playing games and, and did art for Dungeon World. To some degree, it's uh, I would give him a lot of credit for this. Actually, he uh, one time early on, we were doing a group project kind of thing together and uh, we were having a really contentious high schooler debate about how to do something. And Isaac just, you know, everybody kind of like, I was one of the people who was very engaged trying to figure out, you know, what, what is the best way to do this? And Isaac just said, uh, whatever, I'll go with the flow. And at the time this was such a, uh, like weird idea to me. And, and the thing that I ended up <laughs> taking out of it was that not everything I do has to be seen as a judgment on me. Um, Interesting. Like, you know, I was very invested in being right in this this conversation and being a reflection on me. And, uh, you know, Isaac's... I mean, I, I don't think he probably even meant half of this. Like, I think he basically meant, like, I don't care. But part, <laughs> of, what I, yeah, part of what I took out of it was, you know, he's, he's not investing personal significance... Yeah. In, in this and instead is saying like i will move forward from this uh, and that's the important part um and so uh, yeah i i guess between that's hard. that and that's hard though right it's hard not to let other people define you um and and and, and it's also hard not to let um people reframe things for you um all that sh that's 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 some heavy shit dude um, yeah. and, and that's hard to do um hard to do and, and letting pe other people define you like <laughs> i don't think i've ever said this particularly publicly but uh about a year ago there was somebody made a, a big twitter thread pointing out problems with dungeon world and they the actual criticisms were were almost all correct i think there was one missing rules thing there whatever who cares overall very solid points um and i didn't want to undermine that by the one thing that frustrated me which is uh at one point the the thread was you know a little hyperbolic and uh made reference to uh like a certain look that they assumed that i had uh which doesn't look anything like me it was like you you know pink glass uh pink crystal glass wearing uh, like long, long pink hair or whatever. That is actually a description of how Adam Coble looks. Right. That is not a description of how I look, even particularly yeah. close. I, uh, yeah. And for a year now, it is like when I think of that thread, one of the things that actually frustrates me the most is like, if you're going to drag me on things that I've done, uh, please make sure it's actually me. Like the, the, <laughs> the points, the points were actually very good and I've learned a lot from them. Um, but it still bothers me that if, like, you know, th this thread got a lot of attention for, for good reason. Uh, and it describes me uh, in a way that just, like, doesn't line up at all. Um, well, and, and, and stuff like that plagues you, too. But but and I know exactly which thread you're talking about, um, because uh, I, before we started recording, I praised you um, on your handling of that thread because uh, I'd like to think I would have been as good as you about handling I that. I would have. 
I mean, uh, I, and I, I, I would have strived to because I thought you handled it very, very well. Um, but it, um, yeah, I, um, it's funny as you said, because my favorite thing is to go to iTunes and read my bad reviews uh, mm-hmm. on this podcast. And um, it does two things for me. One, it it gives me feedback. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know what? You know what? You're 99% wrong, asshole. But that 1% is a legit thing. Um, or it's the opposite, right? Where, you know, they're 99% right. But the 1% thing is, is that I don't have pink hair. Um, it, it, you, you, you glean that and you hear that. Um, but also, um, how do I put this? There's, I love that I'm producing something. I uh, love is a strong word. It's interesting to me to produce something that somebody hates enough to take the time <laughs> to, to write a review on iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> you and, know? And yeah. We're, we're, we're lucky enough to be, you know, kind of, uh, both of us, I think, uh, socially secure enough that these threats, you know, or that like, sorry, these don't become threats. They are not, you know, that it is just, people being people on the internet confrontations um and so we're we're lucky to approach it from that side but i i agree like i and to some degree i guess that's part of um how i see uh this is i guess a bit of a stretch but how i, I see i can use my privilege i'm in a, I'm in a spot yeah. where i can take people being complete uh r- completely ridiculous about this stuff and uh not have to worry that these people will you know take more serious action about against me for the most part. Um, and so that kind of, you know, the, having that perspective is, is really is a privilege. And like, I, I agree, like I, for a while on, on, I guess I still have it. I just don't look at it much more. Um, I, I had a Google alert on Dungeon World and like the things that I'd most often click on are either if it's like, you know, some relatively big article from a big place or if it's somebody completely trashing the game. Um, and part of that is even just kind of morbid curiosity like i you know how how did they come to this conclusion and sometimes even uh there, there's interesting things that are to spot in the misconceptions then the number of people who come to dungeon world with with misconceptions uh, and part of that is the fact that the book was originally written figuring we were talking to you know maybe a few hundred people most of whom had inter like we're, we're relatively connected to us. And now it's gone far There's some beyond casualness that. in the writing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so there, there are things there that are not as clear as they could be. Uh, absolutely. Yep. Um, but like, it's interesting to see people sometimes using that lack of clarity to bring their own uh, preconceived notions to the game. Um, especially when those notions are colored by some knowledge of Adam or I, or, or kind of our background or, or the other games we're connected to. And so, you know, and the, a lot of those early kind of praise for Dungeon World pull quotes that I grabbed were from people who were in some ways reacting more to the other people that we were connected to. I mean, seeing, I guess, is how I would tend to phrase it, but that's, you know, community, whatever, whatever grouping you want to apply. Circle or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, was, was standing out to people, a lot of the people who are really panning the game more so than any specific thing about the rules. Um and, uh, you know, we kind of made it easy for them. Like, I felt pretty passionate about uh, releasing We kind of the... made it easy for them? <laughs> well, like, in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that the That's game... That's phenomenal. Kind of... That's just good, Sage. Sorry. <laughs> the, the, the game makes it a little easy for them. But there's also the fact that, like, I felt pretty passionate about releasing the text of the game under a, a open license so that people could remix it. But that meant that, like, 
we were an easy target for people who wanted to to rail against this because they didn't have to buy a copy. They could go and look at the you know basically SRD versions of it uh, and read over it and pick out a few things that they wanted to trash on and trash on them. And uh, you know it if you're uh, getting paid by the ad on your site, that's a little cheaper than going out and actually buying a game. Um, it is. And so, like, we're, yeah, like, I think I, in particular, was kind of uniquely, not necessarily uniquely, but, like, through that, the skills that I've realized I have that have developed over time in, in being able to deal with feedback like this, uh, it turns out that we made the perfect game for somebody who can take that kind of feedback, uh, and we released it in the perfect way for that. You know, we... we Isn't that cool? were priced relatively aggressively. We had this open license. So like it's a game that got into the hands of lots of people and lots of people had strong opinions about it. And and what you said about uh, every review means that like a person actually interacted with this and had a strong reaction to that. I, I really agree. Uh, like yeah. even the people who uh, do the um, uh, more like shit soup or uh, shit sandwich uh, kind of reviews uh, for Dungeon World, uh, like they they thought about this game more than they probably thought about a lot of things, uh, which, you know, I'm not happy that that's this specific thought that I provoked, but like it, it is at least a thought provoking thing. Uh, it is. And um, I'm going to probably phrase this poorly, so forgive me. Um, and hopefully my point will come come through the miasma of my head. Um, critiquing is easier than creating. Now, that doesn't take away from the value and the importance of critique, because that is extremely important, right? But there is also something about putting something down on the page, releasing a podcast every week, um, publishing something that is now, because it's gone, right? As soon as I publish this episode between you and I, Sage, it's gone. And you and I can't re-record it. We can't uh, delete it. We can't pretend it didn't happen, right? Um, and um, there that that has its own thing. And, and, you know, and, and by no means are we victims in that scenario because <laughs> we're sitting yeah. here freaking doing it. Right. But but that that is still something as well. And it is it is in some ways easier to then grab that, bring your own thing in with it and come at it and it can't defend itself. And in some cases, it shouldn't defend itself. Right. And we're acknowledging that. Right. We're not saying that, you know, everything is right and, and stuff like that. But um, D Dungeon World is never going to vanish. It's always going to be there. Um, and reconciling that as a creator is, is an absolute real thing. And we are now an hour into this podcast. And I feel like we're shitting on Dungeon World. And I want to stop doing that for a second. <laughs> Because um, one of the things that I thought was interesting, um, and again, I'm putting this in the context of me coming back, right? Sure. So I left D&D and GURPS and then found Apocalypse World and Dungeon World and Blades in the Dark. And I'm like, holy shit. Like it was, it, it blew my mind. And I went through, I went through what was really a 10 year revolution and experienced it in a matter of weeks and months, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've been very curious to find out is, I believe that when we create, we're trying to solve problems that we perceive, right? So as much as Dungeon World is an homage to Dungeons and Dragons, it's an homage to especially early Dungeons and Dragons, I would be curious to know, um, and it may be something that you didn't do consciously, but was there problems that you and Adam saw, in, we can even talk mechanically or non-mechanically, that you you felt like, like, what justifies Dungeon World existing? 
I mean, we've got, we can go play white box, right? Mm -hmm. So, so why does dungeon world exist? What does dungeon world do? What does it fix or what does it present in your mind? So yeah, let me, let me first talk about dungeon world. And then like, I have a larger idea of kind of how this fits into how we, we conceive uh, progress for like a better word in role playing games. So like for, for dungeon world in particular, um, part of what we're doing is creating the rules that focus on the parts of D and D that most people think about playing. Um, because I, for one, love long charts of types of pole arms, uh, but that is typically not the thing that people uh, talk about in their their recollections of D anD D, um, and and that makes it sound too monolithic what people recall. But the, one of the things that people most tend to do is tell, you know, the kind of uh, narrative after the fact of all the events that happened and how they, you know, got sucked into a vortex at the bottom of the ocean and spit out into another dimension and tracked their way back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Dungeon World tends to cut straight to that. It, it uh, Part of what we borrowed from Apocalypse World is that you primarily talk about what's happening in the world of the game and the rules kind of like step in and nudge you along occasionally instead of having to like do that kind of hard shift to like, okay, roll initiative. Like, th- there's a lot of reasons to have initiative. Like, it's a super useful concept, but it also means that there's much more like of a step away and invoke the rules as a, a distinct thing from talking about what our characters are doing. And so by getting people into that flow more, we tend to do more of what they remember from a role-playing game, which is talking about their character and, and get involved there. And then the rules kind of like just step in and step out and interweave with that as opposed to being a, a hard context switch. The the other thing that I think we're kind of addressing, so like more, more tactically, mechanically, um, Progression in D&D has always been a sticky concept uh, because on the one mm-hmm. hand, the the idea of advancement and progression and is key to why D&D works. On the other hand, the ways in which D&D has typically scaled have often been um, slightly either finicky or funky or, you know, the uh, the linear warrior progression versus exponential wizard progression kind of it has thing. Scaling problems. It has scaling problems, and and even in the to- even in the editions or derived games that that have slightly better scaling, it often doesn't feel. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. It, uh, to borrow like a video game analogy, there was some of the early um, Elder Scroll games where everything would scale with your level, and it meant that everything kind of always felt the same. Yeah. Uh, and and D anD D has a little bit of that in the like you know if we. Even if we make it feel different to scale up, how do you fit that into a world such that you can have, you know, 20 times your starting hit points and yet you're you're still walking around next to somebody who has one hit point or whatever? Um, and so they're kind of looking at how to scale a fan, uh, it, in this. And not that we were the first ones to take on this problem, but like when, when people, this again goes back to kind of our overall like, aim or thesis being more or less how you remember playing D&D um, is people remember advancement. They remember getting better over time. Like you can't get rid of that entirely, but they also typically their most editions kind of had a sweet spot of certain levels worked yeah. pretty well. And then yep. some of them didn't. Um, and we wanted to keep you in that sweet spot as much as possible and kind of uh, make some tough decisions about like this just isn't a game that scales quite as far 
we still want there to be that scaling because that that's important to the feeling of advancement, but we're not going to go all the way, you know, the, the 20 level span or whatever. Um, and was that a conscious decision or is that something that you think was more organic? That one, I mean, it probably started somewhat organically, but it was ultimately a very conscious one. Um, and, and something that I think, if anything, we overshot a little bit. Uh, so we, we completely got rid of um, increases to HP. The, the amount of HP that you start with, well, sorry, you could change your constitution score and then technically get a little more HP. Right, but, but like, you don't go from 10 to 30 right you don't go to 10 to 30 and like it it doesn't uh call out there isn't like a specific level up ability that's like you have more hp now um you you kind of have to realize oh if i raise my constitution then i get more hp um if i were to go back i think i would change that slightly but still make it a conscious choice like part of the challenge to scaling in DD is that uh in most editions it's a very default thing every level your numbers go up uh, or at least the numbers that your class cares about. And some of them don't go up or they go up more slowly if they're the ones your class doesn't care about. Right. Um, we went, like, in Dungeon World, uh, we actually still made a little bit of almost a, a mistake, for lack of a better word, in that your your stats do kind of still do that. Like, every so often you get it to do a stat bump. And that kind of has that same problem that, like, you can't scale indefinitely because all those numbers are going to eventually get to a problematic place. Um, yep. On the other hand, we we made things like your, you know, gaining new abilities uh, a choice and a conscious choice. And importantly, HP doesn't auto scale, which makes a big difference in how you can approach uh, like what a meaningful opponent is. You know, how much damage is meaningful uh, in in most editions of D&D. By the time you are a few levels in, a dagger is no longer a scary thing. You can literally have somebody just walk up and shiv you and it. Uh, who cares? Whatever. That that's yeah. Um and, and we wanted to stay a little away from that. We we didn't quite nail it. Like I, I have ideas for how I'd further fine-tune this. Um so like in particular, bring down the absolute number of HP so that you know that, that dagger is always dangerous, but then have allow for increases in HP through specific abilities, but you still have to choose those. It's not a default like every level kind of thing. Um so uh those I think are some of the biggest D&D things. There were also some, like, I really didn't want to do Drow. Uh, like, Drow were, were you know, th- this is kind of the, you know, as it was as progressive a game as as I could be at the time, and that was one thing that I was pretty clear on, like, that well, that one just was not a starter for me. So we, we did a lighter treatment of some similar things. Um, we definitely wanted to uh, be, to, to find ways to be progressive around sex and gender while also knowing that our game is not one that is particularly going to involve that. So, you know, how do you, interesting? like, how do you make a game that is uh, more embracing of a variety of types of people when, you know, Apocalypse World actually puts this front and center and like gives you options there that make you really think about the, the range of identities that people can have. Um, and Dungeon World, you know, we're, we're a fantasy adventure game. That's not necessarily going to come up. And so we kind of had to think about by, you know, we, we don't want to have a, like, male slash female box circle one. Like, that that is definitely not where we're at. But on the other hand, we're also not uh, a game that's going to give you a whole lot of interaction with that side of your character. Um, and so we ended up, you know, rightly or wrongly, just not having that be a thing on your character sheet. Nothing says, uh, you know who your anything about your physical form other than kind of your your species which even that i'd probably go back and treat differently and your um 
so nothing like about any kind of gender or nothing about any kind of sexuality, any of that stuff, because that just isn't where our game's operating. And like, I hope that that's a thing that makes it more inviting people, because if that is something that is a thing that you immediately envision on your character, you can bring it forward. And if that's something that you don't think of, you don't engage with it. Um, yeah. Well, and it also, it, you also allow it to change, right? Yes. By not defining it, it can change over time, which I think is significant as well. Yeah. And, and that is actually something, you know, if I were to go back and, and redo Dungeon World these days, and I, I, I have ideas written down on this and, and it's, a complicated, <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated thing to approach for a number of reasons now, but um, I would probably do uh, D&D for awful reasons, calls it race, but basically species in the same way and call it like a form. And like, instead of having specific abilities tied to them, have a list of common fantasy things to try and bring people forward from the, you know, I'm an elf wizard kind of thing. You can still circle elf there. You can still on your yep. wizard playbook. Um, but all it does is say what your physical form is and whatever this world of magic, you can recircle another one later on. And there's probably a blank spot there too, because, you know, I, I personally didn't really like Dragonborn in fourth edition. It's probably not what I'm going to play, but whatever you write it in there, you have a good time. Um, and so, you know, I think that, when I say uh, kind of as progressive as I could be at the time, that's the the kind of stuff that I was thinking of. You know, we were trying to actively it's where you were. be better uh, than than some of the prior art on this, but uh, we certainly weren't where I'd want to be now. Um, and let's see, other other kind of like um, oh, I guess actually this is a good transition into my overall kind of theory of like um, old. You know, why old D&D can still matter and why we still make new role-playing games on top of that, even ones that look kind of like D&D. Uh, and the best analogy I've been able to come up with is, is cars. Like, you you may want to buy a classic car because you find it really cool. Uh, like, there are distinct, you know, handling and styling and aesthetic things and even some history attached to... Some I, I'm not much of a car person, so I can't name a specific car, but, you know, some some cool old car. Um, on the other hand, if you just want something that's going to get you around, you're probably better just walking off the lot with a Honda Civic or something that'll have a Bluetooth radio and air conditioning or whatever. Um, and I think that's, to me, part of the, like... Dungeon World is the Honda Civic of of D and I guess uh, is is the, the full quote there. Um, like we're it, it's uh, an economical, easy to get into, but it'll do. I, I owned a Honda Civic while I was making Dungeon World. It was great. I loved that car. Um, and uh, you know, in that sense, it like there's a space both for the old thing that probably takes a bit more work to enjoy and probably if somebody just says i need a new car you're not going to be like ah let me get you a classic mustang um you're going to be like oh yeah let's let's go to the kia dealership or whatever um and and so that's kind of my analogy totally with stealing games. Us i'm stealing it <laughs> i'm stealing because like you're saying that out loud like so i i uh, just recently discovered forbidden lands uh mm -hmm. which is uh, uh free leagues right and it's um it's the closest to ocr that i've gotten um yeah. i'm a little resistant to it because i i've played those i don't need to play them again but what is interesting to me about forbidden lands is it feels like i bought my honda civic that i had in high school but it has bluetooth connectivity mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm totally stealing that analogy because like, like, yeah, there's like, like the hex crawl, man. I like, I like we used to do hex crawls and mm -hmm. it sucked. It wasn't that much fun, <laughs> but what free league has done is they've said, okay, here's a hex crawl. Here's what you, 
didn't realize you loved about it. And then we're going to give you some Bluetooth and we're going to take the CD player and a track out and, you know, we're going to add a few more things that that make this more enjoyable. And I hadn't thought about it, but in many ways, Dungeon World does that as well. Right. Which is here's here's what, you know, here's what you're familiar with. But we're going to update a few things and, and and we're going to get rid of some things that you didn't realize you didn't enjoy because you because five years later, after you played Dungeon and Dragons, you don't remember the Thacko sucked. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> what you remember was those awesome moments. And we're going to try to streamline that and make that happen. So that's that's a that's a good analogy, man. The car analogy is good, even though I'm not a car guy either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've watched some top gear and that, that's about as far as I get with cars, but um, <laughs> like I, I it, it's resonated with me in that, like, I can see why people appreciate something old and classic and also why that's probably not the thing that you choose if somebody needs something uh, primarily functional, for example. So, you know, I've, I've played uh, like, I, I think Moldvay is my go-to for, for D&D, for early D&D. And I've, I've played it with people without a whole lot of RPG background. And, like, they, they have a good enough time. But I don't think they're... The people that I've seen that enjoy it the most are definitely the people who are partially there for some of the the quirks and the, uh, you know, the historical perspective and the historical yep. presentation, even. Like, I, I have my Moldvay box right back there that is, you know, beat up and old and falling apart, and it smells in a good way, yeah. but it smells a little bit. Um, and the, and art, yeah. the art invokes memories, and mm-hmm. um, I was just watching, Nef- or no, on Amazon Prime has got a, a uh, documentary on the history of the art of D&D. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. I started watching it and they're talking to Elmore and some of those old artists and they bring up pictures during the presentation stage. And I'm shocked at the memories it invokes. I'm like, I remember that picture. Yeah. Like, like I remember building adventures I never ran around mm-hmm. that picture. I ran them in my head and like, these are images I haven't seen in 30 years. And, and, and they come up on the screen. I'm like, holy shit. Like, and the, and it is, it's that emotional thing. And here's the car analogy. It's the same thing as buying an old Mustang for some people. Mm-hmm. Right. And they go like, I remember that car. I had the Trans Am and mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to buy it again because when I was 17 and I had the Trans Am, I didn't have the money to, to turn it into something new. And now I do, cause I'm 50 years old, you know, and it's all of that is part of it. And, and it, um, I love that idea that you're, that you're hinting at and, and being explicit about at the same time, Sage of saying, um, white box wasn't perfect, but there's things we remember about playing white box that are, that are important and significant. And we can take those and distill it down and figure out what, what it really was and try to get rid of what was in the way. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I'm going to challenge you just a tiny bit on that because I think Please. there's an interesting thing there. Um, there's perfect can mean a lot of things, I guess is what I'm getting to. Like in some ways there, there's uh, a perfection to something that existed at a time and we get to go back and view it as a, a thing that was made then. And it is a perfect uh, like embodiment. It's a perfect uh, like artifact in some ways. And then there's also perfect in, in kind of like, functionality or maybe ease of use like i i never want to go back to thaco that that isn't interesting to me uh and so like there there's we can combine both of those things we we can you know i i feel like rpgs as a kind of field have advanced there are interesting new ideas on how to structure run present 
role-playing games that have come about and and we can absolutely use those um but they don't undermine how good old things were they just open up kind of new ways uh, of being good um and and some of those ways of being good are are perhaps more measurable in the you know how how quickly can you learn this game uh kind of stuff you know that is relatively quantifiable with you know variation between people and stuff and sure we can we can optimize for that and it is kind of nice to be able to point to our new games and be like yeah you can pick this up and be playing in in way less time that is kind of a concrete advancement um but that doesn't mean that the old ones, uh, older games that maybe took longer to set up or or uh, didn't pay off in the first few sessions, for example, are less good or less perfect now. It just means that they're that we have a different set of tools. Um, and so, you know, if we're looking, it, it's. I mean, I I guess back to the car analogy. Like, if if your goal is to get from place A to B, you're going to want a lot of those kind of modern things that make it you know, easier to start your car on a cold day or whatever. Um, but if you are looking, th that doesn't mean that some kind of old classic isn't uh, like a, a perfect artifact, a perfect uh, thing in existence. Um, anyway, this is, this is I, I, I get what you're putting down. And I don't mean to nitpick on the word perfect. I just think you're it's not. really interesting no, you're to not. like uh, explore that. Well, and, and it's... God ties into a lot of what we've been talking about sage which is it's real easy to look back and criticize right and 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 um and forget forget what was first and and, and how that matters right so it, 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 i i so slow, slow down a second i backhanded gygax a little bit by saying he backed into role-playing Right. So that's a little bit of a kind of a twisted backhanded uh, statement by my thing. The, the reality is he created something right. And, 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 it, and out of whole cloth. So, yeah, we can say that, you know, it started here and it's been expanded and built on and improved. And you know what? Fifth edition is probably better than than what, what Gygax made. But but God damn it, he was first. It didn't exist before them. Right. And, and that matters. And, and, and that's significant. And and those those points of advancement um, are should be allowed to be great in their own way. Am I am I am I off key here? No, no, I, I think you're right. And like I think the 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 point that I would add to that is is better for what? Like I uh, you know if if I'm gonna uh, if my my kids are getting close to the age where I'm going to start getting to play role playing games with them. They've already been kind of asking, and like if uh, D and D isn't where I'd start, but if I were to sit down and play D and D with them, yes, I'd probably start with Fifth Edition. Like it, it's uh, straightforward and easy to get into. It has a lot of good, easy things to to leverage. Has a ton of uh, support. Um, has you know easy to get good looking books. That, that's a plus as well. Um, but is that and that is better for that use use for sure um but is it better uh for uh say running a a underground dungeon exploration uh of like weird uh strange creatures and uh skin of your teeth kind of like um 
flubby adventurers, for lack of a better term. Like, yeah. you know, part of what I like about Mold Bay is that, like, a lot of the adventurers look kind of like they're, they're, uh, not very good at what they do. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, there's, and better again can also, you know, they're, I am the kind of person who occasionally I am playing a game and I hit some weird, counterintuitive mechanic and i actually love it just because it's a surprise and it's different and it's weird uh one of the games that i'm playing right now is actually an online uh game of a computer game called solium infernum which is made by a guy uh who now designs board games because he decided he wasn't very good at programming and it kind of shows <laughs> um you're you all play dukes of hell and you're trying to get the most prestige by the the time a new leader is chosen or whatever and you do this by taking places of power and buying relics and backstabbing each other etc cetera, etc cetera. like the the mechanics are all great uh but it's it's old and clunky and there are a ton of mechanics that are weird and if you were just looking for the easiest game to play that kind of overall scenario with a bunch of friends of like, I want to play against a bunch of friends for control and winning through a, not quite 4X, but, you know, a acquire and build kind of game. Um, there are certainly better on-ramps for that that will get you playing on that, have much better graphics, be written by somebody who uh, was not using like a scripting language on a, a toy UI. Um, but this game and all the weird, funky parts of it are kind of why I love it. And and to some degree, Moldvay is the same way. Like it has weird, yeah. counterintuitive things that feel funky and strange and put me a little out of the the most straightforward way of doing things. And so, in that sense, you know, that for certain kinds of games, that is better. Uh, and and D and D always has this problem that like they they revise the game and they always kind of need to market it as better. You know, they want you to buy the new version. Um, and so they always have to show off the the improvements. Uh, and I've my personal feeling is that uh, even across pretty much all the editions, with maybe third and fifth being the only ones that overlap a whole lot, I would mostly choose each edition for a different kind of game. Uh, and in my perfect, I run D and D kind of world, D and D would actually be multiple product lines serving these different, you know, publish new adventures for for. BCMI, like, yeah, uh, like the, there's, there's so many ways to be better. There, there is. And, and it's funny you say that because like, think about this. Um, people can shit on fourth edition all day long, right? There's an industry built on shitting on fourth edition. Um, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, I love Elder Scrolls. I love playing Skyrim. You know what the best edition of D and D to introduce them to is fourth edition. I mean, I, I played a wonderful game of 4th Edition once I started to realize that you basically, like, set it up like Mass Effect. Like, you yeah. you had a few kind of, like, semi-branching story interactions where people can make a few choices, and then you had a few big set... P and, like, you had some easy-to-drop-in interchangeable combats, and then you had a few big set pieces that you really steered people for towards. Yep. And, you know, that's not typically how I like to play. I'm not much of a, like, steer me towards the next thing. But those big set pieces were pretty good. And like actually the the board games derived from 4E were actually pretty fantastic. Like the 4E system made a really good like adventure board game. Uh, I just wish they had even more leveling up than they did. But like uh, th there's there's so many ways for role playing games to be good and even for D&D &D to be good that yep. I, I, you know, this in some ways goes back to that classic car kind of thing. Like 
depending on your use, you can want anything for like we we haven't even talked about a pickup truck truck, for example. You know, if I'm <laughs> saying I've got a lot of like I got a lot of stuff I need to move, uh that brand new Honda Civic isn't gonna be as good as, you know, some F one fifty or whatever. Uh so yeah, like I I totally agree with you that like there are meaningful improvements uh, between whatever old edition you want to pick and and fifth. Uh, it's just interesting to also see where these old things can still be the the best. Well, and and I, and <clears throat> we're now far enough along too, and I think this is significant as well. Um, role playing games are young, um, even if you go back to when they began, they're still young, um, and that means. Now that we are 30, 40, 50 years into this, that there is there is value in going back and and mining that and understanding, understanding that. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's exciting Sage these days about the role playing industry and what uh, his thoughts are. So we'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So, um... If you haven't already figured it out, um, uh, Sage has, um, and this is part of the reason I was so excited about to have him on the show. Um, I'm gonna, I, I'm trying to think of the right term, not an intellectual view on everything, but a cerebral view, I think is a better way to put it. Right. Um, and I think if we went back 12 years, knowing what happened, we could say, you know, something's about to happen, right? Like, uh, like, uh, the bakers are doing something and they're communicating a lot with a lot of different people in their own little circle there. And Harper was part of that circle and, and, and something's brewing and it's going to change role-playing games. And then, you know, two, you know, a year or two later, apocalypse world comes out and, you know, suddenly it explodes and things like that. I'd be interested to know Sage today. Is there things that you're seeing brewing right now that really pique your interest that may turn into nothing, but stuff that you go, this is interesting and it could be something. I'd be interested in what you're smelling right now. Sure. Um, so let's see. I There's a few things that stand out to me there. Um, one of those is the RPGC uh, kind of scene or, or collection of folks, which is uh, RPG and then SEA, which I always immediately read as Seattle, uh, but is actually Southeast Asia. Uh, there, there is a extremely interesting set of designers working uh, from various parts of Southeast Asia um, and doing work that kind of spans various parts of the RPG community. So, like, there's um, uh, 
Lorne Song of the Bachelor, which is an adventure by, oh, I'm going to butcher his name, Zedick. Uh, oh, I'm going to have to look it up because his last name I, I don't think I can even do. But um, the, the, it's an amazing OSR adventure uh, that is uh, Southeast Asian inspired. And it has one of the most interesting dungeons. I, I'm having to talk around because there's a bit of a, a potential twist to it that I don't want. Uh, I, I've read it because I'm going to run it someday. But I don't want to spoil it because as a player, it's, it's not a gotcha kind of thing but there and and it's the kind of thing that you will maybe even find out pretty quickly but uh i absolutely don't want to give it away before before you get a chance to play it uh and uh yeah zedek sue um so the there's a few things um first of all it is beautifully presented and the art style and writing bring in the some of the cultures that it is pulling from um the adventure itself has some extremely cool ways of creating a dynamic environment that is still recognizably a dungeon um, that uh, are really interesting to me. And the adventure also has an element of dealing with um, colonization. So like there's a small village, there's kind of an imperial power that is uh, involved here. And the... Um, in a really interesting decision it doesn't point the players specifically at like these are obviously the bad guys and you have to to side against them like it is presented somewhat that you could choose to kind of be the bad guys and be like we're on this side and and the the imperial power is not the main problem of the adventure they are a complicating factor um which at first i was like i I want this to be more pointed about this being, uh, you know, I, I want to fight the man. Uh, and yep. on the other hand, looking at it more, I can kind of see, um, in some ways it's making a statement about how these power structures prey on people who are already having problems and how they bring in their solutions, which may not make, or well, almost certainly don't make things any better. Um, and, and that is more uh, thought-provoking and nuanced and a better yes. adventure than a straight-up, like, hey, there's some bad guys here, go punch them. Well, and you think about Southeast Asia um, and its relationship with totalitarianism is very complicated because it's been external and internal at different phases, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's fascinating that that's what's coming out of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of the other, some of the other RPGC related folks uh, are doing things more on the uh, kind of exploratory small game side of things. Uh, there's a game called um, Karen Dunn uh, that I have unfortunately not been able to explore as much as I would uh, like to, but the subtitle there is uh, Make God Bleed. And you are, <laughs> you are basically uh worth i think the the phrase they actually use is like worthless heroes um dismantling a god uh and it's inspired by That's phenomenal what a great yeah, sentence yeah it, it's uh inspired by filipino uh culture and uh like folklore and stuff um and there there's yeah there's amazing stuff there uh um oh and i'm 
Actually, okay. I was about to open up my my set of PDFs here, but I'm just going to end up listing so many games that it would take up the rest of the time, and I should hit on a few other interesting things. But RPGC, I think, is one of the the most interesting kind of development uh, scenes or communities uh, circles going on these days. Um, I'm also super into uh, journaling games. So this <laughs> has perhaps unsurprisingly also spiked during the pandemic, but um, yes, it has single player role-playing games are uh, like, I actually, before we had a name for them, journaling games, I wrote a game like this. I should actually re-release it now that I'm talking about it. Um, <laughs> you put where, on an itch. Come on. <laughs> exactly. So like lots of these games are an itch, uh, but like the, the, uh, in mine, it was a, uh, you're a, a traveling, um, like a, an artist or a performer on the road, like a, a band or a, a solo act or whatever. And you're basically, your journaling was supposed to be your blog updates uh, of like your, your, you basically are doing like a, a show blog kind of thing. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, here I am talking about my own work when I'm supposed to be uh, talking about what's exciting and, and that game so is so egocentric, old. dude. It's, um, it's embarrassing. Stage. I know it really is. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> the, these single player journaling games are are really interesting to me, um, partially because of how they can fit in time constraints. You know, uh, in, in yeah. principle, a single player game uh, is one that you can schedule whenever you want to. And as somebody who, like most of my friends, are the uh, stay up late types, and I'm the get up early type. So something that I could potentially kind of play early in the morning uh, for anybody else is is convenient. Um, and, and some of the games to think of there, um, Thousand-Year-Old Vampire. Uh, that one is uh, probably one of the biggest in, in kind of the scene. Um, that's Sigils, what I've actually heard of, yeah. Yeah, Sigils in the Dark is uh, one that I, I want to play. Um, there was there's a couple others that were on my list, but yeah. Uh, oh, um, Artifact, uh, which is um, basically you're you're writing the history of a a like artifact, basically. Um, and there's a, a the designer recently kickstarted a um, semi sequel based on the the some of the same ideas uh, called Bucket of Bolts where you're doing a uh, spaceship that is, you know, going through multiple crews and multiple uses. And eventually you've got kind of like the Millennium Falcon or, or something like that. Um, uh, so yeah, those journaling games are, are very high on my list. Um, and do you consider this and, and, and I'm being a little obtuse here, but is, are those role-playing games? Oh man. So I always try to not define role-playing games because it results in pain. Um, uh, but, I will say the the closest definition that I have of a game where the fiction and the rules feedback into each other, it hits that. Um, and uh, so the interesting thing, if <laughs> if my definition cuts out anything that most people would re- or which has been certainly called a role playing game, uh, it would be the game Microscope. That one actually doesn't fit my my definition. Um, so yeah, other other than that one, uh, and and I don't mean this to exclude microscope. It's just me pushing the boundaries of my own definition. But yep. uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so uh, let's see. Those are journaling games, the RPGC uh, community. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna shout this one out, even though it's it's a little more focused than some of the others. Uh, uh, a company called Gem Room Games um, that have they they have basically three things out there right now, all of which are so on brand for things that I am into that they <laughs> I, I, I 
I feel like they are basically just making games for me at this point. Um, and, and I know that uh, for at least one of their games, Dungeon World was then part of inspiration. So like I, I appreciate having inspired something. Uh, so they have a game called um, High Magic Low Lives, which I, I just had to bring up so I can uh, read the summary because it's one of my favorite sentences written to describe uh, a game. Uh, High Magic Low Lives is a science fantasy tabletop role-playing game about wizard school dropouts who get into trouble with the immoral aristocracy to make coin and build their hashtag brand. Um, That's phenomenal. So yeah, you, you are washout wizards uh, in in trouble with like the the order of wizardry of power that does everything, and uh, you're building your hashtag brand, uh, and that is is great. They have um, Subway Runners, which is uh, uh, basically you are. Um, gig economy monster hunters going into subways <laughs> to uh, fly monsters and repair the subway. Um, and then they just released, uh, so they're, they did not make this game, uh, but there's a game called uh, Morkborg, which is a... Uh, I keep hearing about that. It, it's an OSR adjacent kind of old school game. Um, I It has a lot of cool things, though I will say by far the coolest thing is the presentation. Um, I think game design-wise, it's, it's pretty cool. Presentation-wise, it's amazing. Uh, but Gem Room Games made their own uh, like hack derivative of it called um, Duckborg, which is a fantasy take on DuckTales, uh, which one of my huge obsessions is DuckTales and the uh, really good comics it's based on. And yep. so, um, yeah, Duckborg is... Uh, has been blowing my mind for at least a week. Uh, oh, so that's I, fun. I, those three games uh, are all basically. I am the the epitome of the audience for all of them, and I find it really exciting uh, when I look at the Gem Room games, which is um, Dan Phipps and uh, Callie Lowry. Um, a lot of stuff that they are doing just immediately. Uh, it, it's cool to see people working in the same kind of space that I work in. You know, I mentioned before, really appreciating the people who can make challenging, kind of introspective games, but my my center of gravity is around uh, this kind of stuff. And so it's great to see people making this. So I don't have to, uh, you know, one thing that yeah. John Harper and I say to each other a lot is when we find out somebody else is deliver, uh, like making a game that sounds very similar to something we did, we just saved ourselves a lot of work. Uh, so yeah. I, I'm really glad to see things like this out there. Well, and it's, it's neat to get excited, right? It's neat to go like, this is exciting and, and it doesn't have to be good necessarily mm -hmm. or perfect to, to use a term we've been playing with. It, it, it's exciting and, and it's fun. So I'm going to, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Sage, I subjected you to my uh, standard question of how did you get into gaming? And unfortunately now I'm going to subject you to another standard question of mine. Of course. Um, what that, what the hell happened? So I, when I left role playing games, um, I, uh, you know, had to kind of do the wink and nudge and go, uh, do you play D&D? Like, I, I kind of like playing D&D. Or if I was on my sixth date with a girl, I might mention that I, you know, know what Dungeons and Dragons is. And then I come back and it is bigger than it's ever been. And mm -hmm. it is something that people seek out now and people are familiar with. And I, when my wife introduced me to her friends, they know what it is. Um, mm -hmm. So I would be curious, Sage, what happened when I was away in your mind? Why is role playing bigger now than it's ever been before? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, so to be perfectly honest with you, you've mentioned kind of the, the gap and coming back to something very different a few times before. 
And until you phrase the question that way, I've actually been a little skeptical of like, are things really that different? Uh, but when you phrase it like that, things are absolutely very different. Uh, and very so, different. yeah, now now I'm more willing to buy into your question. I, I was, uh, I mean, like, I would have answered the question no matter what, but I was definitely you a little... You would have been polite. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely a little on the like, really, is it uh, like, I, I don't want to make it sound like there's been some massive shift, but I, I think there have been a few things. Um, so actual play streamed online has been a huge uh, difference there. And like, on the one hand, it's a huge positive in that it's, you know, opening up so many more opportunities to see people playing different games. Um, on the other hand, I think it is skewing some perspective because, uh, frankly, the games that I play in don't look a whole lot like the games that you see run online. I know my friends are like professional voice actors. Uh, nobody has that much time. I mean, maybe John Harper does, but even he doesn't have that much time. Um, <laughs> like, uh, we, we, there's, there's some unrealistic expectations there. And there's also some, uh, misaligned incentives in some ways. You know, I, I, when, if you are a streamer streaming a game, your best interest is in making a stream that gets people to watch and subscribe and yes. hit like, press like and subscribe, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. play D&D, right? If you want viewers, yeah. play D&D. You, you play D&D and you play it big and you play it in a way that is as discernibly yours as possible while also making that something that other people can pick up. Yep. Um, which, there are some good aspects there. It's showing people like, hey, this is uh, a set of like procedures that you engage with, and obviously, when you engage with a procedure, you shifted some. Like That is just a thing that happens. Um, yep. On the other hand, I think it tends to push for certain kinds of games and certain uh, ways of structuring them that don't function the best when your goal is to run a game for you and your friends. And if you use this as an example of how certain games are played, it also tends to skew them because the game as it's played on a stream may not be the same. And there's also that kind of like, if you're a streamer, you want to make your mark on it. You you don't just want to run, uh, I mean, D&D is so broad anyway, but let's say... Um, Apocalypse World, you don't want to just run kind of the most straightforward Bad Max version of it. You want to have your own specific drift on it so that your stream stands out from everybody else's. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a big reason for that shift. It's a big reason for awareness. Uh, but it, it, there's also some aspects of it that I, I don't love. And there's also kind of the the spectacle and personal brand of it. You know, I we talked a bit earlier about uh, being... Uh, able to take harsh criticism and and act on it as being kind of a learned skill that's very important um when your personal like part of that ties into growth mindset where you you view uh intelligence in particular but other parts of yourself as well as not intrinsic things i am smart but things that you work on and do like i worked really hard to study for this test so i did well whatever um once you are a streamer with a personal brand, you uh, your your identity is part of what you are marketing. And so it makes it much harder to have that kind of uh, growth and change mindset because you your uh, and man, I'm way out of my league in talking about this, but this is my personal 
opinion from uh, th this. And especially, you know, when in some of these big, uh, the, the biggest things, the, the, you know, role plays and stuff like that, I, I think it shows through a little bit in how they deal with, with problems and with uh, when things go off the rail. Um, so anyway, like that, I think is with streaming overall is one big reason for why things are different. Um, I think another is uh, shifts in how games are made. Um, you know, Vincent Baker and Ron Edwards were pretty pioneering in finding ways to publish a game that did not involve selling your idea to some small company that would probably be under in a few years anyway. Um, and part of that is, you know, them doing the, the legwork to figure out this stuff. Part of it is the differences in economy of scale and being able to buy digital copies and stuff like that, that all come around. Um, and so, you know, the, the barrier to entry for, for Adam and I making a role-playing game was much lower thanks to that kind of work from those folks. And that then kind of opened the floodgates and it also broadened the set of authors, you know, like a publishing industry tended to like uh you know the rpg publishing industry mostly run by by larger companies tended to have the problems that most large industries do of prioritizing uh you know for the most part straight white dudes um and having democratizing that some has has given more people has at least helped with that part of it. There are certainly still a ton of other hurdles that are completely unfair and uneven, but like it's it, there that that bitterness has added games from voices that we probably wouldn't have other heard uh, heard otherwise. Like uh, Whitney Beltran, um, the uh, is a designer that comes to mind there that I, I think possibly might have not had. Uh, we, we wouldn't have Bluebeard's Bride if, if not for some of the advances that we've made in, in these opportunities. Um, and uh, let's see, other things that have changed. Um, the other aspect there that I wanted to talk about, I guess, is kind of that technological aspect. You know, we, we had our car analogy that we kind of, you know, ran into the ground a little bit, but we did there, <laughs> there's, uh, we've found some ways to make some things faster and easier uh, which in a lot of ways means better, uh, you know, not in all the ways, but practically if, if you wanted to sit down and play D and D with somebody fifth edition is a quicker and easier way of doing that than, than pretty much any edition before it. And it's more straightforward and easy to explain and scales a little better. And so those kinds of, you know, uh, quality of life improvements, make a big difference in how many people kind of bounce off the game. You know, we, we talked about my initial experience with, with second edition. Um, and that could have easily been my last experience. Like that was not an easy game to, to scale or get into. And practically I didn't, I went to third edition because it came out not too long after. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's weird to say RPG technology, but the, the set of tools that designers are working with, have broadened out there and i think part of that goes back to um more more brains working in this area there uh ryan north in in his book about how to invent everything uh makes a comment that if you were rebuilding society the thing that you want the most is more people because more brains are your biggest asset and yep. i feel like that's the same in the design side of things you know part of what excites me about 
RPGC and uh, itch games in general, like you kind of alluded to it, but like itch is an amazing advancement and how easy it is to get a small game out there and to even build a little bit of community around it. Um, Those things get more brains in the room and, and get more ideas out there. And that tends to move the state of the art forward. Um, Do you think there's any generational aspects to this as well, Sage? So for example, you, you, uh, explicitly said, you know, your kids are getting close to getting old enough to be introduced to role-playing games. My dad did not introduce me to role-playing games. Do you mm-hmm. think that's a part of it too, that that goofballs like you and me that played as kids now have kids? I, I think that is certainly a part of it. I think there's also the, the fact that um, like as a generational thing, the memories that we have of D and D are different than folks before us, uh, and that that kind of broadening of the hobby is makes it easier to to bring folks in. I think there's also a generational aspect just in um, which designers had which precedents to work from. Kind of a shoulder of giants thing, but also the the kind of you know which things aren't derived from D and D that we we talked about a lot earlier on. Um, the the set of games that let's say Vincent Baker because I obviously played Apocalypse World and based a lot of my stuff on that and I don't want to use right. myself as an example. Um, the set of games that Vincent Baker had to play was different than say what Steve Jackson had to play before Green Groups. Um, yep. And so there, you know, as these ideas exist and intermingle, there is a bit of a generational thing that, uh, like, there are certain games that were super influential to me from being very active on the story games forum for a a certain window around when Dungeon World was made that um, still probably loom larger in my memory than than Dungeon World do in some ways. And uh, by, you know, most of the kind of more objective measures of success of, you know, copy sold or whatever, far outranked them. So like there was a game called uh, Ganakagok, which was about um, basically... uh, people on an ice-locked iceberg surviving uh, in, in kind of a semi-Inuit uh, society. There was um, How We Came to Live Here, which was based on uh, Native American stories. Um, and, you know, these games, looking back, I, I actually don't even create remember the creators of both of those, but I, I wonder yeah. some about the these may have been more appropriation and stuff, but like these are games that loomed really large in conversations when Dungeon World felt like a small thing. Um, and now, uh, yeah, I, I bet I couldn't even find a copy of some of them. Um, yeah. And, and that's not to say that they like are, that that's a good fate for them or that, you know, somehow Dungeon World is better. It's just like, there's a, uh, a difference as you, yes. um, which things you had to reference and which things you kind of grew up on, uh, that, that makes a difference there. I think there actually another aspect of this is also where, uh, digital games have gone in this time. So, you know, the, the, when D and D was competing against, um, Oh, Diablo two or whatever, uh, that's a very different kind of set of things to, to, uh, compare to um and i remember some some early 3e ads that were like oh you want to you know better graphics in your imagination or whatever and like the typical kind of things that you might do to kind of take pot shots at video games from a role-playing perspective um 
And now that competition look or like that, uh, that set of things looks a lot different. You know, the, the, the games that we have out there now are so drastically increased in scope and are, there are so many more games that are multiplayer from the ground up, which creates more emergent behavior. Um, and, and those things, I think, in some ways, carve out a different space for role-playing games. Uh, I think it was easy at, at one point for role-playing games to basically look at themselves as like an improved version of computer games. Uh, and I think now it's, it's clearer that those are very separate things. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah no, it's a very good point. They're, they're in their own lanes, right? And, and that, the, I mean, we talk about the revolutions of role-playing games because this is a tabletop you know, podcast, but we could, you know, obviously huge revolutions in, in digital games, you know, and it's just part of that too, you know? Um, and, uh, that's, that's very influential. Well, boy, oh boy, Sage, uh, we covered a lot of stuff, man. Yeah, we did. <laughs> um, yeah, this was, this was absolutely phenomenal. And, and, um, I had a big expectations and they were exceeded. Um, so if somebody is listening now, if somebody's listening now, and uh, they want Dungeon World. There's a lot of different places where they can get Dungeon World. Where's the best place for them uh, to get it? Oh man, it. I mean, whatever's most convenient to them. Honestly, like, uh, like there, there are differences in how much profit we make. But like I was saying earlier, uh, like this game has already exceeded by far any any expectation I could ever have. Uh, so. Um, you know, if, if you are in the position to spend money on a game, like I, I always try not to, uh, bring down my, the value of my game too much because while I don't necessarily need more money from it at this point, I don't want to, to race to the bottom and make others lower the prices on theirs. So like we still charge hopefully a fair price for it. Um, RPG or drive through RPG is maybe one of the easiest. You can also buy it directly from the, from burning wheel, uh, who is our publisher at this point. Um, I think those are the two main ones. Uh, and which one, I mean, technically we make more money from one than the other. It doesn't really matter. Just buy it where it's most convenient to you. And if somebody wants just more Sage, where's a good place for them to go? Oh, um, I mean, my starting point is usually my Twitter, uh, partially because I have my personal website is rarely updated and has a domain name. I that noticed that, by the way. Explain. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll, I, I actually was thinking the other day I had a good idea for a post and now I've lost it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, my, my Twitter, which is uh, old Fortran, old with an E underscore Fortran is usually the, the kind of like first stopping point and from there you can go to my amazing website uh, because i don't know a couple of years ago now i really decided that i wanted to find i used to do well it's still live uh with a mirror of the same content latora.org because i was like oh i want my last name as a domain i can have my first name at my last name cool um but it's not a very cool domain name so a while ago i decided to try and find any DD monsters that you could uh split out the last two or three letters into a valid top-level domain and have the entire URL be the name of a monster. Um, so uh, the only one of those... that was... you a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is my hobby. Um, the only one of those that was available is Civ uh, for Neblin, the, the uh, rock gnomes, uh, because .in is the TLD for top-level right. domain for uh, India. So uh, that, it, unfortunately, it's a monster name that is incredibly tough to pronounce. And oh, I half phenomenal. the time can't remember how to spell it. But since, uh, as we've kind of established here, I'm not exactly in this for the like <laughs> high profile and perfect marketing. My website is one that I can't even pronounce. 
Um, so that's why I lead people to my Twitter because then you can you can click on my website and and get uh, my amazing domain. The domain name is probably the best part of the. Uh, <laughs> Even website, if you don't put anything so. on there, <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Um, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And um, Sage, we're going to have to figure out uh, an excuse to have you come back on because I really enjoyed this, man. I would be happy to. Uh, this, this has been a blast, and uh, yeah, I hope it's half as much fun to uh, listen to as I've had uh, talking with you. This has been great. I hope so too. <laughs> hey did you hear that you leveled up you finished another episode of tabletop talk from third floor wars if you want more from the third floor follow us on facebook and twitter head on over to our youtube channel it is packed with painting tutorials gaming tips battle reports and role-playing actual plays did you enjoy this episode why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. You, my friend, are a phenomenal freaking guest. Thanks. Uh, thank you for saying that because I was worried I was kind of like going too, no. too far afield or yeah. Th- this is what my podcast is. This is what Great. I strive for um, is, is let's, 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 as soon as we forget, as soon as it's me trying to learn about Sage and Sage learning about Craig and we're just kind of bouncing and, and I agree with you and you're wrong. And l- like, here's another way to think about it. As soon as that starts happening is I think when I, it turns into something that's interesting for people to listen to. So mm-hmm. um, uh, it's a good energy, man. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. Thanks for setting this up. This is a ton of fun. Like, I mean, I'm glad to be providing you with the recording that, that other people can listen to, but it's also just super fun talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, I, 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 I enjoy doing it. That's why I do it because <laughs> I mean, it's given me a chance to talk to a lot of people. I've learned like, dude, you'd be, you might not be amazed. It's incredible how much I've learned in a year. Mm-hmm. It's just with these conversations, like I feel, I feel like I, you know, I've caught up in what, like, and so I've talked to people like, you know, the, the bakers and you and John and, um, uh, uh, I've got, uh, Kenson coming on who made icons, mm-hmm. which is this mm-hmm. whole thing, you know, and stuff like that. But I've also booked Steve Jackson mm-hmm. and like, that's going to be fascinating. Like that's going to be oh, real yeah. interesting, you know, because, you know, Steve Jackson is who was my superhero, you know, you know, 25 years ago. And I have no idea where Steve Jackson is today. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm dying to talk to him and very mm-hmm. interested to see what that conversation is going to be, you know? And oh, yeah. It, I mean, one of, those are conversations I wouldn't have had without this podcast. One of my my most influential games that I ever played in was was a GURPS game. Like it yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. I, I I'm going to have to find. I'm so bad at listening to podcasts these days. because I don't have a commute anymore. But I'm going to have to find time to, to listen to you talking to Steve Jackson because that'd be amazing. So and John asked me to do this, too. So I'll do the same thing is every once in a while, like uh, I'll release an episode. And I was like, I think John would find this interesting. I just shoot him a link and, oh, yeah, please you know, do. and I'll do this. I'll do the same thing with you, Sage. And if you listen to it, great. If you don't have time, no big deal. But um, that way you don't have to monitor the damn thing because um, we're all busy. But um, all right. Yeah. So what I'm thinking here, actually, I'm not going to I'm not going to set it up for you. I'm going to make you talk through it live. You ready? OK, that sounds great. fantastic segment awesome thank you yeah i'm I'm glad that worked i i realized that we were kind of like uh moving through topics pretty quickly so i hope that was okay but uh well yeah my only complaint about it is that i want to dig deeper right so um and that's exactly what i'm going to do um because both of the both of these things which is the origin of the game but so i read your twitter thread 
um, where the, the, you know, the guy called you out a little bit and um, uh, respect the shit out of how you responded to that. Just so you know. Um, And I I think that is, and I don't don't want test subject was a terrible phrase that I used for you, but I I don't mind. I'm good with it. But, but, but it, 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 you, you have an interesting arc, right? And, and, and there's solid, there's solid landmarks in that arc. And I'm fascinated by that arc. I talked to Megan Vincent about it. I've talked to a couple people about it. Um, and your perspective on it's going to be really interesting. So, sure. um, but I'm going to go back to boring dungeon world stuff here. Um, so, yeah, um, absolutely. I'll bring us back. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers. Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.